When the Lights Go On Again, Chapter 13 There were no ants in the Waldorf Astoria's basement. If there had been any to begin with, Hank had spent enough time down here playing with chemicals to drive them away. It felt strange to wear the helmet and have nothing to talk to. He missed them, sometimes. They weren't just tools. Ants had a social order, a society as complex as anything humans had come up with. They had divisions of labor, could problem-solve, could communicate with one another, even teach one another. People thought social insects were hive minds, like the Borg, but they were anything but. They might be so heavily interdependent on one another that they couldn't survive outside the colony, but they were all individuals. Very organized individuals, who all knew their place in the world with utmost certainty, and were willing to give him a place there, too, whenever he had the helmet on. No one but Scott Lang had ever really understood the appeal of that. Most people looked at Hank strangely when he tried to explain. He'd built the Ant-Man helmet to talk to them, initially, and only begun using it to fight crime after he'd realized that it could also control them. He'd never anticipated other uses for it until the Argonian occupation had forced him to work closely with Spider-Man, and he realized that Spider-Man's spider-trackers little transmitters he stuck to people or things in order to track them down using his spider-sense, worked on the same principle. Both the spider-trackers and his helmet used electronic signals to mimic the effects of anthropod pheromones. With only a few tweaks, Hank could probably use the helmet to communicate with Spider-Man as easily as he could with an insect, though spiders not having a hive or colony instinct meant that he wouldn't be able to control their behavior with it. That wasn't on the agenda for today, though. Today, all he needed to do was send a signal to the spider trackers Spider-Man had attached to the detonators at Madison Square Garden to remote trigger the bombs. He was, Spider-Man had told him cheerfully, way better than a timer. Hank glanced at his watch. The requisite fifteen minutes since Jan and the others had left for one police plaza had passed. It was time. The helmet responded to his thought patterns, translating them into electrochemical impulses, so Hank closed his eyes and thought, Explode. It was like sending a signal out into a void. The ants always answered, responding to him and transmitting his instructions amongst themselves. The spider trackers weren't alive, though, and couldn't answer back. Hank had no way of knowing whether they'd heard him, if the explosives had really gone off. He hoped so. This was the first real role he'd played in a field operation, and the success of Clint and Tony's rescue depended on it. What if it hadn't worked? If the charges hadn't gone off, Jan and Steve and the others would be walking into a death trap, filled with too many guards for them to ever overcome. He wasn't going to think about it, Hank decided. He was going to trust that his science had worked, and focus on something else. The echoing silence around him made the basement even lonelier than it usually was. Hank pulled the Ant-Man helmet off and laid it aside, smoothing one hand over the silver metal. Then he turned back to the never-ending project that was the Argonian autopsy reports. So much data, and none of it, save the venom composition, had proved to be of any real use. He was missing something. He knew it. There had to be something useful there. He knew there was. It made him want to bang his head against the table. 
he never missed things. He'd at least managed to solve the mystery of why the food Tony and Clint were given had no vitamin C or salt in it. Neither substance had been present in the Argonian's body, and both were irritants to it. For all the good that knowledge would do. Hank glared at his lab notes, resisting the urge to tear them up, or ball them up and throw them at the wall. Missing something, damn it. Missing something! What was it? He threw the notes down on his lab bench and ran his fingers through his hair, sighing. This wasn't helping. He couldn't think right when he was frustrated, and sitting still was making him feel twitchy. The other good thing about ants was that they were always nice and calming. Hank gave up trying to pretend to be calm, and jumped to his feet, pacing the length of the room and back again. The salt and vitamin C were important. He knew that, even if he hadn't figured out how yet. Argonians didn't need to eat them, but neither substance would kill them, either. So why were they letting a valuable resource like their human scientists die slowly for want of them? Did they just not realize humans needed them? Surely not. If they knew English, they had to know that people needed vitamin C. They knew, and yet they were deliberately letting their captives die of scurvy. Why? Hank made another circuit of the room, listening to the dull sounds his footsteps made on the concrete floor. He stared blankly at his workbench as he paced, absently cataloging its contents. Helmet, disassembled spider tracker, Argonian tail barb, aquafortis, a rack of empty test tubes, homemade explosives, ready for use and stored as safely as possible, which wasn't very, batteries, hydrogen peroxide, Windex, Clorox. He'd stuck the last two next to one another on purpose, rolling his eyes defiantly at Jan. Ammonia and bleach. Both of them were poisonous on their own if ingested, but together they produced chlorine gas, the first deadly airborne toxin ever deployed in chemical warfare. It hadn't killed as many people as phosgene, but it was probably far more famous, not least because it could be made by combining two common household chemicals. Combining. Hank raced back to the lab bench and snatched his notes up again, frantically scanning them until he got to the data he'd put together on the Argonian's metabolism and central nervous system. Salt and citric acid alone would irritate them, make them sick. Together. Human cells in the human nervous system required sodium and citric acid to function properly. Argonians' bodies used different chemicals for those purposes. Heavy metals. Metals that would bond with chelating substances and become metabolically useless to them. Sodium and citric acid combined to form sodium asorbitate, which was a chelating substance. The Argonians were depriving their human prisoners of vitamin C and salt for the same reasons that humans, at least halfway intelligent humans, didn't try to wash something with ammonia and bleach-based products simultaneously, because vitamin C and salt together produced a deadly poison. A deadly poison that was colorless, odorless, and completely soluble in water. Hank forgot all about his worry over the rescue attempt. He had more important things to think about right now, like how much sodium he had on hand, and how much of the vitamin C he had stockpiled for when the scientists were rescued he would need to mix it with. 
He didn't know exactly how high a concentration of sodium asorbitate it would take to kill an Argonian, and it was always better, when in doubt, to err on the side of caution. After all, it might be deadly to Argonians, but it was harmless to humans. Deadly to their enemies, harmless to them. Easy to make. Hank started pacing again, a wide grin spreading across his face. It was the perfect weapon. Now he just had to get Steve to agree to it. As soon as Steve... and Jan... came back. The feel of Argonian bones cracking underneath her fists was immensely satisfying. Carol ducked a slash from an Argonian sword, blocked a blow from its tail with her forearm, and kicked it in the stomach. It folded up the same way a human would have, and she slugged it on the jaw, snapping its head back with a sharp, cracking sound. Another Argonian lunged at her, sword extended, and Steve's shield caught it dead center, knocking it to the ground where it lay unmoving. It was still breathing, she was fairly sure, but it wouldn't be getting up anytime soon. Steve bent and scooped up his shield in one smooth motion, swinging it up just in time to block a plasma bolt. "'You take the back door,' he told Carol. "'You four. He nodded at a quartet of non-powered resistance fighters, all in NYPD or military flak jackets, and carrying submachine guns. Go with her. Ben, Firestar, and I will take the front. Simon, Jan, Spider-Man, find a window and go in from above.' He said nothing about the Argonian Carol had just killed, and even after months of lethal fighting with guns, bombs, and powers, that still felt strange. Once, he would have pulled her from a fight in a heartbeat, if it even looked like she was getting too rough, or would at the very least have kept her where he could keep an eye on her, like he was doing with Angie. Instead, he was sending her off on her own, with her own mini-team to oversee, this way, Carol snapped, drawing her own gun. She hadn't needed it for the first round of Argonian guards, not at close range, and setting off through the sparse cover of the ornamental trees in a wide circle that would take her around to the back of the building. I'll take point. The four men followed closely behind her. At least two of them were ex-National Guard, veterans of the battle at George Washington Bridge, and the Argonian invasion before that. They had experience with this kind of fighting, which hopefully meant that they wouldn't hesitate to shoot if they ran into human guards. It was one of the biggest problems with the ex-policemen. Most of them could barely bring themselves to shoot other humans, and that would be dangerous in a firefight. It was too bad they hadn't been able to bring some of the infantry guys over from Brooklyn for this. The Argonian Weapons Factory was proving to be every bit as well defended as expected, even with the explosions at Madison Square Garden keeping reinforcements from arriving. Wanda's team had done their job there, after all. They'd managed to set most of their explosives before getting caught. They should have never sent a team with so little firepower to run a mission that dangerous. Ben Grimm should have gone, or Angie, or Carol. Watching Wanda's back had been her job before she'd fucked it up. Getting into the old police headquarters building would have been nearly impossible, save for the fact that half the guards had run to the front entrance, drawn there by the firefight outside. The three Argonians that remained at the door went down in a hail of gunfire, and Carol kicked the door in. It was reinforced bulletproof glass, so it took two kicks. 
The Argonians had gotten seriously overconfident if they honestly thought they could successfully keep people out of this place. The back door opened onto a drab maintenance corridor, which took a sharp turn to the left several feet in. Carol held up a hand to signal her men to halt, and edged slowly forward, ducking low and peering around the corner. The corridor beyond was, unsurprisingly, filled with Argonian soldiers and human guards, all of them armed with swords, and the Argonian all with plasma guns drawn. She yanked her head back, not quite quickly enough, to entirely avoid the plasma bolt that seared a painful line across her right cheekbone. Grenades would be really nice right now, one of the ex-National Guard guys observed. He was around Carol's age, a short, stocky black guy with a scar through one eyebrow. That probably came from an Argonian blade. His fellow guardsman, white, red-headed, and painfully young, was clutching his submachine gun with white-knuckled hands. We should have gotten some from the crazy bug guy in the basement, the kid muttered, or the Fahrenheit guys. They always have explosives. There was a moment of silence that felt much longer than it was, and then one of the ex-policemen said, Who's going to go first? I will, Carol said. I'm a lot harder to hurt than you guys. She dove around the corner, keeping low to offer as small a target as possible, and rolled to her knees. With her gun already aimed and her finger on the trigger, one of the Argonians went down, then a second, and the air around her was filled with streaks of plasma. They left holes, pits, and scorch marks wherever they struck the walls or the floor, but miraculously, none of them hit her. She could hear gunfire from behind her and knew the other four were at her back now. Once, she would have thrown herself at the Argonians in order to take them on hand to hand, knowing that her team's bullets would simply bounce off of her. But she wasn't quite as invulnerable these days, and the four men behind her weren't bullet or plasma proof at all. So she stayed where she was and emptied her magazine into the guards, aliens and humans alike, until none of them were moving anymore. The good guys weren't supposed to kill people, but this had stopped being about good guys and bad guys a long time ago. The firefight was brutal, but brief. It was probably only a few minutes later when Carol lowered her weapon and turned to survey her team. The two NYPD guys were still standing, looking completely untouched, but the younger soldier, the red-headed one, was barely on his feet, one arm draped over his fellow guardsman's shoulder, and a horrific-looking plasma burn on his thigh. "'Take him back outside,' Carol told the older soldier. "'Back to the rendezvous point.' She forced herself not to wonder whether or not the kid would get to keep that leg. The older soldier nodded and started to steer the kid back towards the exit, and that was when the lights went out. It was daylight outside, so even given the dark, tinted glass in the windows, there was still enough light to see by— if this was some Argonian defense mechanism, it wasn't very effective. Maybe it was designed to work at night, when turning off the lights and plunging the building into darkness would give the Argonians a significant advantage. Carol took a deep breath. Right, she said. So it looks like they know we're here. What a surprise. What do you think tipped them off? The policeman asked. The gunfire or the explosions out front? I'm putting my money on the explosions, the uninjured National Guard guy said. Then he and the injured kid resumed their slow progress towards the exit, the kid limping heavily and wincing with every step. 
The next several sections of corridor were clear, as well as the stairwell at the end of them. The door to the stairwell had an intimidatingly large electronic lock on it, but it opened easily at Carol's touch. It wasn't just the lights. The electricity for the whole building was out. Wanda must have... She winced inwardly and corrected herself. Firestar must have done something to it. The door to the second floor was equally easy to open, but a second group of Argonian guards awaited them outside the stairwell. Carol and her men nearly walked straight into them, and it was yet another stroke of good luck that she was the one taking point. An ordinary human would have been beheaded by the sword stroke she walked into. Carol herself only just managed to dodge it. She grabbed the Argonian by the wrist and punched it in the face, feeling bone break under her knuckles, and nearly lost both her footing and her grip on her still astoundingly conscious opponent. When the ground under her feet shook and the loud rumble of a very close explosion filled the air. What the hell was that? Simon? Firestar? Simon didn't do explosions, not inside buildings that could all too easily come down around them. Had they accidentally set off some kind of self-destruct countdown? Considering that the building was full of human hostages, the death toll could be enormous. The Argonian slashed at her with its tail, the nasty poisonous barb on the end scratching harmlessly against her skin. Cree DNA conferred total immunity to Argonian venom, according to Hank's tests, which, according to Jan, had just spared her a world of pain. Carol grinned at the alien, showing all her teeth. This is for kidnapping my teammates, she told it, punching it again. Then the wall fell on her. The Argonian's body shielded her from the worst of the impact. Carol shoved it and about 50 pounds of rubble off her, shook chunks of crumbling gray plaster and concrete out of her hair, and looked up to see the rhino, standing in the middle of the gaping breach in the wall, a chunk of plaster pinned ridiculously on the end of his horn. He had a man in a gray lab coat tossed over one shoulder, and Tony and Clint were standing behind him. I could have gotten the wall, the man in the lab coat protested. Now put me the hell down and get out of my way. Carol, Clint said brightly, grinning broadly at her and hefting a blood-stained sword. Great! You're just in time to help us escape. He looked like hell, with dark circles under his eyes, a huge purple bruise spreading across the side of his face, and a pair of bloody gashes along his forearm. But it was Clint. Carol should have felt relieved. Half the point of the mission, beyond destroying the Argonian's weapons production facility, was to rescue Clint and Tony. Instead, there was a sort of sinking feeling in her stomach. It had been silly, but she hadn't been able to quell the hope that when, if, they found Clint and Tony, Wanda would be with them. Stupid. Wanda and Pietro were probably in cells deep underneath Grand Central, if they weren't dead already. You can help us get the others out, Tony was saying. He was shockingly pale, looking almost as bad as he had the last time she'd seen him, when he'd just finished being beaten within an inch of his life. He was wearing what looked like jury-rig repulsor gauntlets on both hands. There are more scientists back there. He nodded back over his shoulder. And some of them are too sick to walk on their own anymore. Rhino's passenger, on his feet now, if not entirely steady, gaped at Tony. There are a zillion Argonians back there, and you want us to go back? He demanded. Shut up and do it, Schultz. Tony snapped, 
You're being paid for this. And if I know the kingpin, he's paying you damn well. The kingpin had people inside the Argonian's weapons factory. Carol wasn't sure why she was surprised by that. He had people everywhere else, so why not with the Argonians? Not well enough, Schultz muttered. He scrubbed the back of one forearm under his nose, wiping away a thin trail of blood and straightened his shoulders. Great, he raised his hands, which were covered in a pair of chunky metal gauntlets, and smiled, revealing bloodstained teeth. It's time to shake, rattle, and roll. Carol glared at him. The next person who utters a stupid supervillain catchphrase, she said, gets to stay here with the aliens. Schultz obediently shut up. You, Rhino. Carol stabbed a finger at Rhino's hulking gray form. You have point. Why me? Because you're bulletproof. The Rhino's face twitched for a second, as if he were trying to think of an appropriate rebuttal for that. And then he shrugged and took the lead, lowering his head and squaring his shoulders as if preparing to impale or trample anything, or anyone, in his way. Clint returned his sword to its sheath, not bothering to clean it, and bent over the unconscious Argonian who had served as Carol's alien shield when the wall had come down, removing the plasma gun from its limp, clawed hand. He held it out at arm's length, sighting along its barrel, and smiled. I've wanted to use one of these things for months. Be careful, Tony told him, his lips twitching into the faintest of smirks. If that's one of the ones I repaired, then it has a 10% chance of blowing up when you fire it. Clint regarded the weapon for a moment, dropped it, and turned to address the two ex-policemen, both of whom were staring at the rhino with visible trepidation. Either of you guys have an extra gun? Here, the taller of the two said. He unsnapped the holster on his belt and pulled out a handgun, holding it out to Clint. I don't have any extra clips for it, though, so make your shots count. I'm Hawkeye, Clint informed him, with a pale shadow of his usual cocky grin. I never miss. At Carol's signal, they moved further into the building, back the way Clint and Tony had come. They met two more groups of Argonians before they finally reached the place where the bulk of the scientists were being held. Clint wasn't lying. He didn't miss. Neither did Tony. Repulsor gauntlets, Carol discovered, could burn holes straight through flesh at close range, leaving wounds even more gruesome than the plasma guns. The fact that Tony was willing to use his favorite toys that way didn't surprise her as much as it should have. Some of the scientists looked so bad that they made Tony and Clint seem healthy. On the way out, Carol carried one woman in her arms, and the rhino had a scientist draped over each shoulder. Though, granted, one of them was the shocker, who had passed out after using his vibrational gauntlets to turn two Argonians into bloody pulp. We're not going that way, Carol said, as her motley collection of soldiers started towards the rhino-sized hole in the wall that they had used to enter the room where the scientists were housed. We're far enough into the building that it'll be quicker to go at the front. Just head toward the sound of the explosions. Maybe we'll meet Cap's team in the middle. Tony turned abruptly, staring at her with an indecipherable look on his face. He's here? He breathed, his eyes widening. For some reason, Carol was suddenly reminded of Wanda, of the way Wanda had stared up at her when she had broken their kiss and shoved her away, awed, hungry, and a little afraid. Yeah, she said, he's here.
Ah, Arch-Captain, Urkala said pleasantly, but with a carefully calculated note of impatience in her voice. There you are. I require your assistance. You do, Ninurkala? Kamani asked, voice mild. Listening to her, one would never guess that she had been dragged out of bed in the middle of the day to respond to Urkala's summons. Her uniform was, as always, perfect. Beside her, Arch-Captain Mamatu looked distinctly less orderly. Her black tunic was equally impeccable, but her fur was still rumpled from sleep. She had arrived on Kamani's heels, having clearly followed her from the officer's quarters, and was now regarding her and her callous suspiciously, clearly curious as to why her fellow officer had been summoned to the Archon's quarters during the brightest hours of the day. Yes, Urkala told Kamani, ignoring Mamatu as if she were not present. I have heard that you play the liar. I find myself unable to sleep, and would appreciate it greatly were you to play for me. It was not a request, and she did not phrase it as one. Mamatu looked smug, her ears relaxing and her tail curving lazily with satisfaction, clearly amused that her rival had been summoned to perform a task that would normally have been relegated to a slave or low-level mechanicos. Kamani inclined her head respectfully. I would be honored, Ninarkala. She turned to the nearest guard and ordered him to fetch her instrument. He hesitated to obey and returned remarkably quickly with a cloth-wrapped bundle that was, presumably, the arch-captain's instrument. As Kamani took the lyre into her arms and began to unwrap it, Urkala turned to the still faintly amused Mamatu. You may return to bed, arch-captain, she said crisply. Your work is too vital for you to be poorly rested. Mamatu saluted sharply and departed, tail swaying jauntily behind her. Urkala watched her go, then turned to Kamani, gesturing for the officer to precede her into her chambers. This way, arch-captain. Kamani's steps slowed as she entered the royal apartments. She had never been in here before, and was no doubt as struck by the beauty of the ornate woodwork and painted ceiling beams as Urkala had been. The massive window set into one wall had been hung with the heaviest draperies they had been able to find, the blue velvet completely blocking the sunlight and rendering the rooms comfortably dim. The place had been an eating or drinking establishment of some sort before the Argonians' arrival, but when all the tables and chairs had been removed, the comfortably large room made an ideal dwelling place. There was even a balcony area perfectly sized and positioned to serve as a bedchamber. And it was here that Urkala led Kamani, gesturing for her to take a seat on one of the couches, while she herself sat down on the edge of her bed, curling her tail around her feet for warmth. Kamani fiddled with the pegs on her lyre for a moment, and then began to play. It was a classic piece, a century-old ballad about the last stand of two lovers who had died together in one of the final space battles against the Scandians. The lyrics, which Kamani did not sing, were ridiculously sentimental, but the tune itself was both haunting and subtly triumphant. The battle had been a great Argonian victory. For a moment, Urkala simply listened, enjoying the music. 
Kamani might not be as skilled as a professional musician, but her playing was serviceable, and she only rarely missed a note. She must have known that Arcala had summoned her here for a reason, and that said reason was hardly likely to be something as frivolous as music. But she did not ask any questions, focusing all her attention on the lyre instead. You play very well, Urkala commented after the second verse. Thank you, Ninurkala. Kamani finished the song, then began a second one, a purely instrumental composition this time, and one that Urkala was somewhat less familiar with. When the final chords of the piece had died away, she said into the silence, Ninurkala, is this truly why you summoned me? So, patient, but not as meek as she sometimes appeared. Do you believe I brought you here under false pretenses? Urkala asked. No, Ninurkala, merely that you must surely have a purpose beyond the obvious. My music is not so skillful as to be worth playing for the Archon herself. You sell yourself short, Archcaptain, Urkala said, but you are otherwise correct. I wish to speak to you in private. About, she hesitated for a fraction of a second, then, tactics, perhaps? And how I may best serve the Empire? It was a bold question, one many would have done more than hesitate over. It seemed Urkala had made a wise choice in co-conspirators. Yes, Urkala said, smiling in spite of herself. One might call it tactics. If some... She paused for just an instant for emphasis, flicking the end of her tail gently back and forth. Terrible tragedy were to befall Imperator Nurgle. Do you believe Archcaptain Mamatu would be a fit replacement for him? No, Ninarkala, I do not. Decisive and to the point. Her policies and strategies would be no different from his but her skill at politics is less, and her temper more... uncertain. She is quick to anger, and less inclined to think of the future than the Imperator is. Urkala bowed her head in agreement. If the Imperator were killed or injured, we would find ourselves in the middle of a terrible crisis, in need of skilled leadership. If Archcaptain Mamatu were for some reason to find herself unable to assume control of the army, would you feel yourself capable, Archcaptain? There was a silence for a moment. They both knew that Urkala was not speaking of a hypothetical worst-case scenario, or indulging in idle speculation. Her words were an open offer of power and influence. In return for Kamani's aid in arranging for Nurgle and Mamatu to meet with the aforementioned tragedies. The silence had become strained before Kamani said, ears lowering, I fear I have not the experience. Her voice was apologetic, and her cala could see the shame admitting such a thing cost her in every line of her body. I have been an arch captain for less than a month. I was only promoted to subcaptain a year before the evacuation. A valid concern, but unfortunately, not one they could afford to take into account under the current circumstances. There is no one else, Urkala said simply. 
You would not be doing the job alone, rest assured. I would assist you, as would the advisory council once it can be formed again. Which, if Nurgle was out of the way, would be a straightforward matter. As things stood now, appointing a new council would be tantamount to sentencing those she chose to death. If I were called to serve Ninurkala... Kamani trailed off, then her ears stiffened, and she said, I am the tailbarb of Alulam. I swore never to falter. It was agreement, and of more than just her willingness to take on the duties of Imperator, should it become necessary. You have my thanks, Archcaptain, Urkala said formally. You are a true warrior. She paused, then went on. If something were to happen to Nurgle, Mamatu is poised to take his place to ensure that his policies are continued. Which was, of course, the very last thing Urkala wanted. And, she suspected, not an outcome Kamani desired either. If she were to lose her position, whether to challenge or some unfortunate accident, then only Nurgle himself would be left to ensure that our commitment to the occupation of this planet remains firm. Kamani's ears swiveled forward, alert and hopeful. Might it not be conquered more completely and ruled more efficiently with different tactics? Urkala shook her head. The humans are as countless as grains of sand, while we are few, and their spirit is stronger than we had anticipated. We did not take into account how dangerous these powers some of them have would be. Even eliminating the largest stronghold of empowered humans has, I fear, done little to bias time. The destruction of the island of Madripoor had been yet another of Nurgle's plans, costly and time-consuming, and ultimately, she felt, not worth the Argonian casualties it had cost them. And for what? Even this city slips through our fingers, and even if our rule were uncontested, we cannot thrive here. The light is too bright. Many of the plants humans consider edible are full of acid, impossible to eat without searing one's mouth. The mechanicos tell me that there are vital nutrients missing from those few fruits and vegetables that are edible, and that so long as we remain here, eating only meat and grain, our women will not conceive. Kamani looked startled, her ears stiffening and her tail going still. Is that true? But there are already so few of us, and with the losses we take, the number grows fewer every day. Urkala inclined her head in agreement. You see, then, why we must leave. She had long ago come to the conclusion that their position on Earth was untenable, but learning this had driven home exactly how vital it was that they withdraw from this wretched planet before it began killing them by inches. The creature on the moon told us much about this planet. With a proper persuasion, he may be induced to tell us about more hospitable ones. Kamani was frowning, her tail twitching uselessly now. If we found a new planet, we would have to start over there, begin rebuilding our fleet all over again. It would take a great deal of time. Time, Archcaptain, is something we have in abundance perhaps the only thing we have an abundance of. By the time our population returns to a level capable of supporting a military assault large enough to retake Argon, 
you and I may very well have grandchildren or be dead. That is, if we can find a world where children are even possible. Kamani stared at her blankly, her expression utterly appalled. It was a terrible thing to have to come to grips with, Urkala knew. The knowledge that she would never see Argon again was a weight upon her shoulders even now, long after she had accepted it as the inevitable truth. I can see that, Ninurkala, Kamani stammered after a moment. She drew in a deep breath. Her ears, which had been pulled back in shock and disgust, swiveled forward again. Archcaptain Mamichu has insulted me several times of late, she said, with great precision. And I tire of it. If I were to seek satisfaction for the offense she had offered me, what are the chances that Imperator Nurgle might meet with some misfortune? If I kill Mamichu, she was asking, will you be able to rid us of Nurgle? Urkala thought of the liquid speed of Mamatu's movements as she defeated the last warrior to challenge her, striking so quick that Urkala herself had barely been able to follow her blows. Are you sure you can face her without suffering defeat? she asked. It was rude, terribly so, to cast doubt upon another warrior's prowess in such a manner, especially so directly. But it had to be asked. They could not afford to risk showing their hand only to suffer defeat. She is one of the most skilled duelists I have ever seen. Yes, Kamani said, but she leads with her right foot and relies heavily on her tail blade, and she fights with less care when she is angered. If I can defeat her? I would say, Archcaptain, that should you succeed in obtaining satisfaction, the Imperator's luck may prove most unfortunate indeed. Urkala smiled, and said, loudly enough for it to carry through the door to the guard waiting in the corridor outside. You may resume playing, Archcaptain. Something more cheerful this time, if you please. They found the scientists' workstations before they found any scientists, or maybe factory floor would have been a better term for it. Several massive engines in various stages of completion were arrayed in a rough circle, making the most of the room's space, and tools and machine parts were arranged neatly on workbenches. Steve couldn't help but stare at the collections of tools and half-assembled weaponry, wondering which had been Tony's workstation. None of them looked messy enough to belong to Tony. Tony's workspace always had at least three different projects and various stages of completion covering everything, along with random pieces of various models of the Iron Man armor, empty coffee mugs, papers he'd brought in from his office and forgotten about, open engineering journals with snide comments written in the margins. This place looked much too neat and sterile to be somewhere Tony had lived and worked. I don't know what any of this stuff is. Ben Grimm said, glancing around the room. But it looks important. I say we do something about that. He cracked his knuckles, and the room was filled with the sound of grinding rock. Work quickly, Steve ordered. They'll be on us again in just a few minutes. They had taken out two squads of Argonians in order to get this far, and with all the noise they had been making, more had to be on their way. 
Ben threw himself into the task of smashing the alien machinery with considerably more enthusiasm than he showed for smashing living opponents. Firestar raised both hands towards one of the engines and sent a wave of power surging at it, metal warping and heating to a cherry red glow. The explosion happened without any warning. One moment, Steve was standing there impatiently, watching Ben and Firestar destroy everything mechanical or technological in sight, while he ached to hurry onward and find Tony and Clint, and the next, the overheated engine was flying apart with an ear-splitting bang. Steve went to his knees, shield up to block the flying shrapnel, then shook his head, trying to drive away the ringing in his ears. "'Sorry,' Firestar said, not sounding particularly apologetic." It, um, wasn't supposed to do that. We're done here. Steve shoved himself to his feet again, not bothering to dust his scorched and soot-stained uniform off. He could hear the distinct sound of sub-automatic weapons fire from deeper within the building. Carol's team had obviously made it inside and run into resistance. He nodded in the direction of the sound. This way. The hallway was dark, visibility made even worse by the smoke from the explosion. The light had gone off several minutes ago, and the only illumination came from the windows, which were filled with some kind of darkened glass that barely let any light through. The air was thick with the smell of burning, and the smoke made the lining of his throat hurt. The enemy would be at an advantage in these conditions. Their night vision was far better than a human's. Steve took point, every nerve wired with anticipation as he listened for the sound of Argonian footsteps, or the faint clink of those metal decorations they wore. What he heard instead were human voices, and he froze, trying to determine whether they meant ally or enemy. His ears were still ringing from the last explosion, and in the dark, with smoke everywhere, it was difficult to place exactly where sounds were coming from. One moment, he could hear distant voices, and the next, the sounds were right on top of them. Steve tensed, readying his shield, but still wasn't prepared for the person who came around the corner. Clint rounded the corner ahead of them and came to a skidding halt when he registered that this section of the corridor wasn't empty, and Steve found himself staring down the barrel of a thirty-eight. It was a good thing he had his shield up, because he was pretty sure Clint came within inches of shooting him. Clint stared at him with wide eyes for a second. Then he shouted, Cap! and flung himself at Steve with enthusiastic abandon, hugging him tightly. Steve was frozen with surprise for a moment. Then, when it penetrated that this really was Clint, that he was here and alive and okay, he hugged back as hard as he could. Then he remembered that Clint was holding a loaded handgun with the safety off, a handgun Steve could currently feel pressed into his back. Clint, he said very calmly, I don't care if it's by accident. If you shoot me, you are off the team. You're here, Clint exclaimed gleefully, though he obediently let go of Steve and stepped back, lowering the gun. You guys have good timing. We decided not to wait for you to rescue us, but just when we started to bust ourselves out, here you are. He grinned, seemingly oblivious to the huge black bruise on the side of his face and the drying blood that covered his left sleeve. I defeated an Argonian warrior in single combat. Then his buddy threw me into the wall, but the important part is that I won fair and square, even with the stupid sword and its screwy balance. 
he slapped the hilt of the Argonian short sword he wore slung at his hip. Who's the weaker species now? Steve felt his own face breaking into a grin despite the situation. Clint, at least, was all right. Maybe a little battered, but all right. Is, he started to say, about to ask where Tony was. He had to be with Clint, had to be all right. A huge dark shape loomed up out of the smoke, and Steve broke off mid-sentence, his shield arm automatically coming up again as he recognized the rhino. Then he made out the limp forms and gray lab coats slung over each of the supervillain's shoulders and relaxed again. I can't believe I'm about to say this, Clint said, but the big guy is on our side. For now, anyway. Beside the rhino was Carol, his gray bulk making her look small even in a combat vest and with a gun in her hands. Only two of the men he'd sent in with her were with her now. Where were the others? Where was Tony? Any casualties? he asked, forcing him to think of his men first, to deal with the mission first. One man down, she said, but no fatalities. Steve didn't let himself sigh in relief, but he felt some of the tension leave his shoulders anyway, even though they were still in the middle of enemy territory. This was an important mission, a tactically justifiable one. They had struck a major blow to the Argonians' munition supplies and taken out at least a dozen new engines for their aircraft, but deep down he couldn't shake the feeling that the entire affair was an exercise in selfishness on his part, risking the lives of over a dozen people just to save two men, just because they were people he loved. Only some of the tension left him, though. He couldn't completely relax until they were safely out of here, and until he found... "'Is Tony with you?' he demanded. Carol waved impatiently at the ragtag collection of scientists standing behind the rhino. "'We're all here. Mission objective achieved. Tony has the tail-end Charlie position. He has the most firepower.' Steve squinted, trying to see through the dim, smoky hallway. The scientists were bunched together in a pathetic-looking huddle, several of them sporting ill or injured companions.' Behind them, barely visible in the shadows, was a tall, thin silhouette in what looked like yet another lab coat. His hands and forearms looked distorted and disproportionately large, as if he were wearing a pair of heavy metal gauntlets. Tony, Steve said in a hoarse whisper, his throat suddenly tight and raw from the smoke. Steve. Tony's voice was low, rough and he sounded almost wondering as he said Steve's name, as if he couldn't believe that Steve was really there. He took a step forward into the weak light that was filtering in from the closest of the tinted windows, and Steve's breath caught. He was gaunt, hollow-eyed, and something about the way he moved telegraphed some hidden injury to Steve. He looked sick, beaten down, like a man pushed very close to the breaking point, and Steve was painfully reminded of the last time he'd seen Tony look this bad. There had been smoke everywhere then, too. "'Are you?' he started, and the hallway was abruptly filled with the sounds of shouting and running feet and the whine of a ray gun being fired. "'Incoming!' Spider-Man yelled, throwing himself around the corner and into their midst." Go, 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 giant angry aliens with swords, run! 
Jan was clinging to the shoulder of his costume, and Simon was only a few feet behind them, flying just under the ceiling, his ionic form filling the hallway with a weird purple glow. Everyone was instantly on the move again, even the scientists, running for all they were worth. Simon solidified and dropped to the floor, grabbing one of the slower-moving scientists and picking him up in a fireman's carry, and Ben had one prisoner tossed over each shoulder now, like the rhino. Steve fell back to the group's rear, shield up to guard both himself and Clint, who was busy emptying the clip of his thirty-eight into the pursuing Argonians, from plasma bolts. He knew the exact second when Tony fell in at his other side, not from the whine of his repulsor gauntlets charging up, but because the presence he sensed next to him felt so right, so familiar. Tony had his back again. The next few minutes were a blur of noise, gunfire, and motion, as Steve and everyone else with a projectile weapon kept up a running firefight with the Argonians, guarding the scientists' rear as they made their retreat. Steve found himself wishing desperately for Wanda, who could have jammed the Argonians' ray guns, brought one of the damaged walls down on top of them, or hidden them all behind a lucky cloud of smoke. They were supposed to have Murphy's Law working for them on this mission, not against them. When they burst out of the building and into clear air again, the bright sunlight was a slap in the face. Beside him, Tony staggered to a halt, one hand up in front of his eyes. It was, Steve realized, with a sick jolt in his stomach, probably the first time he had seen the sun in months. They didn't have time to be dazzled by it, though. Steve grabbed Tony by the wrist and yanked him into motion again. Keep moving, he yelled, as the ragged little band of resistance fighters and escaping prisoners ran hell for leather toward the park, where they would be able to find at least a little cover. Spider-Man was the one bringing up the rear now, putting some of his precious limited supply of web cartridges to good use. When the Argonians followed them, which they undoubtedly would, they would run straight into massive spider webs right out of the Hobbit, and would hopefully end up tangled in them like so many flies. Maybe luck was on their side anyway, even without Wanda helping it along, because the Argonians didn't follow them through the park. Possibly it was because of Spider-Man's webs, possibly because large parts of one police plaza were now on fire and well on their way to becoming a raging inferno, or possibly because they had simply taken too many casualties to pursue a heavily armed enemy out into broad daylight. Probably the second, Steve reflected. Argonians didn't seem to fear facing negative odds. Tony stumbled, nearly going down, and the metal of his repulsor gauntlet was hard against Steve's fingers as he pulled him to his feet again. Just keep moving, Steve told him. We'll be safe soon. You'll be safe, he wanted to say. I got you out, and now you'll be safe. Tony nodded silently, and they kept running, the Argonian compound burning behind them. Chapter 14 Most of the long run through the streets to the Avengers' headquarters was a blur to Tony. They changed directions three times, maybe four. He lost count quickly. To throw any prospective pursuers off the scent. And he had an impression that they'd covered a considerable amount of ground. He couldn't swear to it, though, or recall any of the streets they had come down. He had just been following Steve. 
Steve, tall and solid in his familiar red, white, and blue costume, looked exactly the same as he had the last time Tony had seen him, so many months ago. As if everything that had happened since then, the Mandarin, aliens, all those long, dark months spent underground, had been nothing but a bad dream. Tony hadn't been able to make himself focus on anything other than Steve's back in front of him. He knew that the Avengers weren't staying in the mansion anymore, but it still felt odd, wrong somehow, to go to ground somewhere else. The Waldorf Astoria was a beautiful building, and Tony was normally a big fan of ridiculously expensive luxury hotels, but that didn't do much to counter the disappointment he felt as their ragged little band of superheroes, supervillains, and scientists walked into the hotel's darkened lobby, where Hank was waiting to meet them. He'd known they weren't staying in the mansion anymore, but after so long sleeping on a cop while guards watched his every move, Tony just wanted to go home. Then again, Steve was here, and Clint and Hank and Jen and everyone else, so he supposed that the Waldorf Astoria was home now. Are you sure you don't want to come in? Spider-Man's voice was too loud, echoing off the marble floors and high ceiling. He sounded as if he was still jittery with adrenaline from the escape, or maybe from the run. Your friend is bleeding from his nose and mouth. I think he might need a doctor. <laughs> Even Spider-Man didn't know who the shocker was without a stupid yellow costume. The kingpin said to report straight back to him. The rhino started. I'm fine, Schultz snarled, speaking over him. It's just a nosebleed. And I especially don't need help from you, you little brat. Fine, Spider-Man said. I was only trying to be nice. You know... I think I liked you better when you were still wearing that stupid yellow quilt. Clint, meanwhile, was staring around the dimly lit lobby like a tourist. Wow, he said. How come we never stayed anywhere this nice when I was on the team? Tony thought about informing Clint that the Avengers Mansion was just as nice as this, if not nicer. But he couldn't quite manage to string the words together. Everything felt distant, not quite real and Steve was standing next to him, close enough to touch. Everyone around him was human. Nobody but Clint was wearing black. Nobody, not even the Shocker or the Rhino, was an enemy. Everyone was... Where's Wanda? He asked, his voice sounding odd in his own ears. There was a sudden, heavy silence. The Argonians have her, Jan said quietly, staring down at the floor. Clint put one hand on her shoulder, awkwardly. Despite the comfort he was trying to offer, he looked lost and very young. Suddenly, like he had when the Argonians had poisoned him. They have... When did they capture her? He asked. I thought she was with you guys. She was. Carol's voice was flat. Or she should have been. It was my fault. They took her three days ago. We'll get her back. Steve's voice was uncompromising. And even knowing how impossible breaking yet more people out of Argonian prisons would be, Tony found himself almost believing him. Pietro, too. They have Pietro? Clint's voice cracked raggedly on the words. I thought he was outside. Why was he even here? It's a long story. Steve laid a hand on Clint's shoulder, his red glove very bright against the black uniform. We can deal with it later. Right now, you and Tony need food and medical attention. And someone... 
He raised his voice slightly, addressing everyone now. Needs to find all of these people a place to stay. I can do that, Carol began. No, Hank interrupted, speaking up for the first time. He had spent the past several minutes just staring at Jan silently, relief at the fact that she was unharmed obvious on his face. Tony knew how he felt. No, I need to talk to you guys. Have someone who's not an Avenger do it. We'll debrief you later, Steve said, shaking his head. Right now we need to. I know how to get rid of them. Hank blurted out. I can kill them all without hurting a single human. Twenty minutes later, Tony was sitting at the dining table in a tower suit he vaguely recognized. He had a dim memory of Pepper arranging some kind of business conference here once, with a bottle of Gatorade in one hand and a glass of orange juice in another. Sodium ascorbate, Hank was saying. I knew I was missing something. From as soon as I started the autopsy, and that was it. It poisons them, strips vital minerals out of their bloodstreams, and interferes with the proper function of their metabolisms and cellular function. Like what the scurvy and electrolyte imbalance was doing to Tony and Clint. Only much, much faster and nastier. Salt? Tony blurted out, they're poisoned by salt? And they decided to come here, where 70% of Earth's surface is covered by salt water? Wait, so that's why I've been eating flavorless mush since the beginning of time? Clint's eyebrows rose, surprised making his battered features look almost ghoulish. I thought they were doing it on purpose to keep us weak or something. Drink your orange juice and don't interrupt, Hank said, pointing at the untouched glass of juice by Tony's elbow. Tony picked up the glass and drank automatically before logic kicked in and remembered that he didn't have to do whatever he was told anymore. The orange juice burned in his mouth, stinging in the sore places that seemed to cover his gums. But it was the most delicious thing he'd ever tasted. They're not poisoned by salt. Well, they are. But only a little. Not enough to do more than give one of them a headache. They're poisoned by sodium ascorbate. It's a compound of sodium and ascorbic acid. That's vitamin C, he added, before anyone could ask. It interferes with their cellular metabolic functions in a way that's way too complicated for anyone else at this table to understand, so I'll just give the short version of the explanation and say that it will make them sick. Very sick. Tony thought of Mamitu casually backhanding him across the face, of Clint writhing in agony from the Argonian venom, of bruises that had mottled everyone's skin, and the handful of scientists who were now so sick from malnutrition they could barely stand, of the physicists who had died from radiation poisoning, and Dr. On, whom they had tortured for encouraging the others. Then he thought of Isimud's huge black eyes, watching intently as Tony corrected an engine blueprint, of the handful of guards who hadn't sneered at or hit him, of the head mechanicos at one police plaza, who had been so pleased to have Tony working for him. We can't just kill them all, he blurted out. Not all of them are evil. How can you say that? Firestar cried planting her hands on the table and half-standing. After what they did to you. Because, Tony said defensively, they're... Sit down, Angelica. Steve said. His voice was quiet but firm, and Firestar obeyed instantly, though not without shooting him a resentful glance. He turned to Hank and said, very evenly, Tony's right. We can't poison them all, Hank. It would be genocide. Not even saving the planet justifies that. It may be the only way to get rid of them. Carol shook her head, causing several more locks of blonde hair to slide loosely from the already messy ponytail she had pulled them into. 
She looked different, in a flak jacket and with a gun at her side. Not like Warbird or Ms. Marvel at all. She looks like a soldier, Tony realized. They all did. Wars aren't pretty, she went on. You told me that yourself. You do what you have to win and you pay the price for it later. Steve folded his arms and squared his shoulders, not quite glaring at her. It was his steely-eyed, square-jawed recruitment poster pose. The one that he assumed when he knew that he was right and you were wrong. Some prices are too high. Tony winced inwardly, suddenly glad that Steve didn't know that he had been going to go ahead with his plan to, to blow up the entire converter room in order to destroy the Argonian shield. Despite Steve's explicit orders to the contrary, he wouldn't have understood. Carol was right, though. Much as he didn't want to admit it, many of the Argonians didn't deserve to die, any more than Tony's fellow hostages would have. But if it was the only way, was Hank's poison painful? Would it hurt the Argonians as much as their venom had hurt Clint? I didn't say we should kill them all. Hank waved one hand sharply. He looked offended, maybe even hurt. I said I could kill them. That's not the same thing. We don't have to use concentrations high enough to kill them. Of course they didn't. Why hadn't anyone else realized something that obvious? What good would making them sick do? Simon asked. I mean, aside from being kind of generally satisfying. The generally satisfying part's a good enough reason for me. Ben Grimm rumbled. I thought the whole idea was to make them miserable enough to leave us alone. Clint, who had been silent throughout most of the meeting, nursing his bruised face and looking as worn out as Tony felt, nodded at this, the undamaged half of his face shifting into a lopsided smile. How sick? Tony asked the vague outline of the plan beginning to take shape in his head. It was frustratingly hard to think through the exhaustion that still clung to him like a blanket. But this was important. So he shoved his body's complaints ruthlessly aside and made himself concentrate. Sick enough to keep them from defending themselves against an attack? Sick enough that they couldn't fight back? It depends on the delivery method. Jan was frowning, staring down at her folded hands as if in deep thought. Could you make it airborne? That would probably be fastest. She was full-size, not sitting on Hank's shoulder or perching on the edge of the table, as she usually did during Avengers meetings. And her clothing was just as practical and field-ready as Carol's. No. Hank didn't even pause to think. It needs to be ingested. Sodium ascorbate soluble in water, and almost completely odorless. There would be a faint salty taste, but with luck... They wouldn't realize what it meant until it was too late. They don't eat salt at all, so they might not recognize it. We haven't actually agreed to do this, Steve pointed out, with some asperity. I vote yes, Simon announced. I say we follow Hank's plan, strike them when they're all out of commission, get Wanda out of there. It's at least worth a try. Clint half raised his hand. I vote yes, too. Especially the Wanda part. Carol silently raised her own hand, glaring down the table at Steve with an odd sort of defiance that Tony wasn't sure was entirely due to a disagreement over tactics. Maybe she and Wanda had gotten over their differences. Or maybe Carol had decided that whatever problems she had with the other woman didn't matter when a teammate was in danger. Tony hadn't even thought of the possibility of rescuing Wanda and Pietro, 
but he automatically added that to his list of arguments to try and convince Steve. First, though, I know where the controls for their force shield are, he said. I even have some idea of how they work, after this much time. I could never get near them before, not with all the guards they had around them. But if they were all weakened by poison... He trailed off and shrugged casually, trying to reject confidence, as if the prospect of getting down into the converter room again and past dozens of guards was no big deal. And if it turns out I can't work the controls after all, I'll just go back to plan A and bring the roof down. A few repulsor blasts in the right places would collapse and flood the entire chamber. Everyone at the table turned to stare at him. From the expressions on their faces, he hadn't done as good of a job sounding confident as he had hoped. He was probably out of practice. When the hell was killing yourself and everyone around you, including me, plan A? Clint demanded. I was going to send you up to the ground floor first. There was a long moment of dead silence. Steve was staring at Tony, his jaw set. And Tony could read unhappiness and anger in the set of his shoulders, and the way his eyes narrowed. Tony wondered, for a moment, which would be worse in Steve's eyes. The fact that he had been willing to sacrifice over a hundred innocent lives to gain a tactical advantage. Or the fact that he had it within his power to cripple the Argonians' defenses, and had thrown the opportunity away, because he hadn't had the guts to go through with it. He had spent so long desperately wishing he could hear Steve's voice again, could touch him, could see him. He didn't think he could bear to see disappointment in Steve's face when he looked at him. Tony looked away, dropping his gaze to his hands. There was still a smudge of grease on one from the Argonian engine he had been working on early this morning. That's not actually a bad idea. Tony's head snapped up again, and he stared blankly at his new source of support. Not the suicidal bringing the roof down part, Spider-Man clarified. Though that's kind of clever, too, in a creepy sort of way. The part where we poisoned the Argonians and sent somebody in to destroy their shield controls while they're too weak to fight back. I'm with the kid, Ben said. He waved one big orange hand in Hank's general direction. I can't say I understand exactly how this poisonous vitamin C thing is supposed to work, but it makes as much sense as any of Reed's plans ever did. It's just not right. Steve protested, though more weakly this time. Just because it won't hurt humans doesn't make it okay to engage in chemical warfare. It won't hurt humans, will it? Hank snorted. <laughs> they use sodium ascorbate as a food additive. That doesn't mean it's not bad for you, Simon pointed out. We can talk about the evils of processed food later, Clint told him. How are we going to get it into the water? They run all the water people drink in Grand Central through a filtration system they built on one of the old Metro North platforms. Everyone turned to stare at Tony again, and he shrugged, concealing a wince as the motion pulled at his sore ribs. The long run that had followed their escape hadn't been kind to his body. Izumo told me about it, he said. He had me check the plans over for errors. The whole thing is surprisingly efficient, actually. He's got a real flair for fluid dynamics. We got you out of there just in time, Clint muttered, shaking his head. If that force shield of theirs goes down, Steve said slowly, this city will be defenseless. They're losing ground outside the shield. 
Their entire high command structure is in here, where they think they'll be untouchable. S.H.I.E.L.D. is still out there, and they have a helicarrier. If the S.H.I.E.L.D. were gone, he shook his head. The Argonians wouldn't know what hit them. You agree that it's worth it, then? Tony stared across the table at Steve, resisting the impulse to avoid those intense blue eyes. Tony shook his head. I think it's tactically expedient. I think it's probably our best bet for getting Wanda back and actually hurting the Argonians in a way that's significant enough to seriously impact their ability to stay in power. He paused for a moment, for emphasis, laying his hands palms down on the surface of the table. We don't get to decide whether it's worth it. Other people will do that, later. We have to decide if we can live with it. It won't kill them, Hank burst out. For the love of little green apples, isn't anybody listening to me? Steve's eyebrows rose. Can you guarantee that? Can you guarantee that a large enough concentration of this stuff, enough to render everyone who drinks it incapable of fighting, wouldn't be enough to kill all their sick and wounded? Or anyone who drank too much of it? Well, no. I don't have any control over how much water they drink. Hank shook his head sharply and made a jerky, frustrated gesture with one hand. Does it really matter whether we're poisoning them or shooting them? Dead is dead. Steve looked away, fingering the seam along the side of one red glove. They can fight back when you're shooting at them, he muttered. Only Steve would be worried about whether the methods they were using to fight the evil alien overlords were fair. For a moment, Tony wanted to reach across the table and take Steve's hand. Could almost feel his fingers curling around Steve's red leather-covered wrist. To thank Steve for being better than the rest of them. For trying to do the right thing, even here, even now. In the end, they put it to a vote. Angelica thrust her hand in the air before Steve had even finished speaking, followed closely by Carol, Hank, and Clint. Then Simon, Spider-Man, Jan, and Ben raised their hands. Tony waited until everyone else's was up before raising his own, not wanting to look as if he were out for bloodthirsty vengeance, or as if he didn't care about Steve's objections. Steve stared around the table at the unanimous show of hands. Only Johnny Storm was absent. He had gone to the Daily Bugle's building with Franklin and Valeria, in case the Argonians had succeeded in following the others to the hotel, there was a long, awkward moment of silence, no one wanting to be the first to speak. Then, slowly, Steve raised his own hand. It would be best to do it as soon as possible, he said, while they're still off guard from today's attack. Jan nodded. That makes sense, she said. Who's going to go in and deliver the poison? It's going to be more than I can carry, isn't it? Hank nodded. A lot more. I'll do it. The words were out before Tony was even aware that he had spoken them. It wasn't until the rest of the team turned to stare at him again that he realized what he had just done. I'll do it. He repeated, more firmly this time. I gave myself up to them the first time around. I've been cooperative. Helpful. I can go to the nearest guard post tomorrow, turn myself back in, and say you guys kidnapped me when you stormed the factory. It was the only logical choice, really. 
anyone else could be thrown into a cell or shot on sight, if caught. But Tony could go in openly. They trusted him, at least to an extent. Or they had, before he had escaped. It has to be me, he went on, when Steve, and Clint in particular, failed to look convinced. If anyone else tried to surrender at this point, it would be too suspicious. And a prisoner wouldn't have enough freedom to get things done properly. Not that Tony himself was guaranteed not to end up in an Argonian prison cell anyway, but he had a better chance than any of the others. His chances of getting back out again, on the other hand, were probably not high. Steve shook his head, clearly getting ready to object. Tony felt warmed by the concern for a moment, and smiled at Steve as he said, softly, You know I'm right, Steve. Steve didn't answer, probably knowing the truth, but unwilling to admit it. He hated to be wrong about these kind of things. He had missed Tony. He had said so in his letters. He thought Tony's place was by his side. He had revealed, in that last letter, that he was attracted to men, maybe even hinted that he felt something more for Tony than friendship alone. Tony wanted nothing more than to stay here with Steve and the others and find out if that was true, if there was a chance for something deeper between them. The world at large, however, and the Argonians in particular, didn't care what he wanted. It has to be me. He repeated. He had been ready to die for the sake of defeating the Argonians before, in the converter room. He couldn't offer anything less now. How are you planning to get back out? Hank said, in a tone that implied that he had already figured out the answer to that. His eyes were narrowed suspiciously. Tony shrugged. I'll worry about that once I've succeeded in getting in. Maybe I should go in with you, just in case. Clint was watching him intently, a little frown on his face. He knew how slim the odds were of Tony coming out again better than anyone. Clint, they probably have you listed as a deserter. And even if they didn't, how are you going to explain cutting their tracking device out of your arm? Tony nodded at Clint's blood-stained sleeve and raised his eyebrows meaningfully. Remember what happened to the last guy who tried to desert? Didn't they cut him into pieces? Jan said. Small pieces? It was more medium-sized pieces, actually. Clint returned, but he looked less certain now. Then he yawned, hiding his face behind one hand and rubbed at his eyes. Jan's face softened, and she put one hand on Clint's arm. When was the last time you ate? she asked. Or slept? Yesterday? Clint shrugged one shoulder. I don't know, more recently than Tony. We can work out exactly how we're going to get him in there, and what happens afterward later. Ben said, frowning at Tony from beneath rocky brows. We're all hungry, and tired. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm getting tired of sitting around covered in plaster dust. Steve gave Tony a long, considering look, and then nodded at Ben. We'll meet here again in twelve hours. Carol? I know, she snapped. Quinjet rules. Steve frowned a little, looking bemused. I was actually going to ask if you and Simon could check on the resistance members who went in with us and see if they're okay. Carol blinked, a faint flush of embarrassment staining her cheeks for a second. Oh, she said. Sure, I can do that. Come on, Simon. 
She stood abruptly, pushing her chair back from the table, and turning to go without checking to see whether Simon was following them. So, the meeting's over? Clint said. Great. Where do you guys keep the food around here? Jen, Steve said. Show him. I've got it. She interrupted. She tugged on Clint's uniform sleeve, pulling him to his feet, and led him out of the room. Firestar and Ben were also standing now. I'm going to bed, Firestar said flatly. It's, um, good that you guys are back. She added awkwardly to Tony. Then she was gone, and Ben with her. And Tony and Steve were alone, except for Hank. Hank was still sitting at the end of the table, showing no signs of any intention to leave. When the door had closed behind Ben, he said, flatly, They'll throw you in a cell as soon as you show up. It's what I'd do if I were them. We don't know that, Tony protested, more for Steve's sake than anyone else. And anyone else would be cut down on sight. I know. That's why whoever goes in with you has to be able to go unnoticed. Hank. Steve started. Don't tell me you need me out here more. Hank interrupted, slamming the palm of one hand against the table. You don't. I might not be any good with a gun, but nobody else can get the proper concentration of sodium ascorbate into their water supply. I know, Steve said, and nobody else can shrink down small enough to go unnoticed while still carrying large amounts of chemicals. Jan can't shrink objects. You can. He shook his head slowly, looking as tired as Tony felt. I know why it has to be the two of you. He didn't have to add that he didn't like it. Tony could hear the unspoken misgivings anyway. Good, Hank said, because this is my plan, and you're not sidelining me this time. He smiled at them both, and there was a familiar flash of something fierce and gleeful in his eyes for a second. Then he sobered, and added, more quietly, Tony, you look like hell. You should get some rest while you can. Thank you, Tony said, equally quiet. I'll do that. He wasn't thanking Hank for the suggestion that he rest, and from the little nod Hank gave him as he stood to go. Hank knew that, too. So! Tony turned to Steve and offered him the brightest smile he could muster. Where's this food I keep hearing about? The sodium ascorbate in the water was a good plan. Brilliant, even. Higher gonian casualties with no loss of human life. All the benefits of a poison gas attack, but none of the drawbacks. At least, there had been no drawbacks when Hank had first thought of it. The plan was not supposed to have included Tony going on a suicide mission. And that's what it would be, for Tony at least. Any pretense for Steve's benefit that the Argonians weren't going to have him arrested, and, probably, executed as soon as he turned himself in once again, was just that. A pretense. Tony wasn't planning on coming back. Hank had been able to see it in his eyes from the moment he volunteered to deliver the poison. There'd been a resignation there, an acceptance, rather than defiance or fear. Hank knew what it was like to resign oneself to one's fate. He had been in that position more than once. Thank God Steve had seen reason and agreed to let him go along. When Tony fell, someone would need to carry on with the rest of the mission, 
And not only was Hank the only one who could properly calculate the right amount of sodium ascorbate to add to the water filtration system, he was the only one who had even the slightest chance of figuring out the shield generator's controls afterwards, if Tony was no longer capable of reaching them. Tony's surrender was just the means to get Hank and as much sodium ascorbate as he could soak in pim particles and carry with him into Grand Central. After that, everything would be up to Hank. He knew it, Tony knew it, and from Steve's very obvious unhappiness with the entire idea, he knew it, too. Getting Steve to agree had been the easy part, though. Now he was going to have to explain it to Jan. Jan was in the kitchen, with Clint. It was where he had expected to find her. What he hadn't expected was to walk in to find her hugging Clint, both arms wrapped tightly around him while Clint buried his face in her hair. Clint's eyes were closed, his face twisted up as if he were trying not to cry. "'Am I interrupting anything?' Hank asked, trying to sound cheerful or mock offended, and not as if he knew that Clint was on the verge of some kind of breakdown. There was nothing worse than being stared at and offered pathetic attempts at sympathy while you completely fell apart. Jan and Clint sprang apart as if they had been burned by one another's touch, both of them flushing. "'Hank,' Jan said, staring at the floor. "'We were just—' "'They weren't looking at each other. "'They weren't looking at Hank. "'Oh, hell. "'He had interrupted something. "'Hank felt a sudden, sickening lurch in the pit of his stomach at the thought. "'He'd always known he wasn't good enough for Jan. "'He'd been a terrible husband. "'Had actually hit her once, for God's sake.' It was amazing she'd taken him back at all, and he'd always sort of known that one day she would find someone who actually deserved her. He hadn't expected someday to be right now. It's not what it looks like, Clint blurted out. It looked like you were crying and she was comforting you, Hank said carefully, deciding to forget about Clint's pride. What was it actually? Jan rolled her eyes, the guilty flush vanishing from her face. All right, it was exactly what it looked like. I wasn't crying, Clint said defensively, and something inside of Hank eased at the ineffective attempt at denial. Clint didn't sound guilty. He sounded embarrassed that Hank had caught him moments away from weeping on Jan's shoulder. Of course not, Hank said. Of course not. Of course Jan wasn't cheating on him with Clint. It was just his paranoia rearing its head again. She'd barely even seen Clint for the past four months, just a handful of minutes every couple of days. He wouldn't have blamed her if she had, he reminded himself. Jan had the right to be with anyone she wanted to. It wasn't as if they were still married, after all. They'd been divorced for years. And while he wasn't sure Clint actually deserved her either, he was probably a better man than Hank much as he hated to admit it, and he'd spent months risking his life to spy on the Argonians. I hate to interrupt your torrid affair, Hank went on dryly. Thank God he'd overreacted. Of course nothing was going on. But aren't you supposed to be eating something and going to bed before you fall over and I end up having to carry you there? I wouldn't fall over, Clint protested, and I definitely wouldn't need you to carry me, Man Mountain. Hank chose to rise above the use of the hated nickname, mostly because he'd never been able to come up with a similarly irritating one for Clint. 
Everyone else is busy, he said instead. And Jan's not big enough to carry you, so of course it would be me. Jan raised her eyebrows. How do you know I wouldn't be able to carry him? Hank just looked at her. He had learned, after much hard experience, that questions like that didn't actually require an answer, and that it was, in fact, often better not to give one. Fine. Jan shook her head, smiling, and turned to pick up a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter from the counter. Let's go down to the lobby. She turned to Clint. We can use one of the tables in Peacock Alley. How often do you get to eat in a four-star restaurant for free? I don't think it counts if you bring your own food, Clint pointed out. Clint, meanwhile, was staring at the peanut butter jars if hypnotized. Is there jelly? He asked hopefully. Only strawberry, no grape. Jan opened the fridge and pulled out the little glass jar, along with another twelve-ounce bottle of orange juice. The stores had all run out of cartons of juice a month ago, and they had had to stock up on single-serving glass bottles in preparation for Clint and Tony's rescue. It's the only kind of sandwich filling Valeria will eat, she added. Strawberry's good, too, Clint said, nodding. Hank was pretty sure he would cheerfully eat anything right now. He looked painfully thin and tired, his eyes ringed with dark circles. The vitamin deficiency had obviously caught up with him. They were lucky that neither Clint nor Tony had any powers, which would have increased the demands on their body's metabolism significantly. Hank was trying not to think about what might be happening to Pietro with his abnormally accelerated metabolism. If he was dehydrated or badly injured, the electrolyte imbalance from the lack of salt could have killed him already. He had to go in tomorrow. They couldn't wait any longer, not and have a prayer of getting Wanda and Pietro out in any kind of salvageable condition. Plus, every hour that elapsed between the attack on one police plaza and Tony turning himself back in would only increase the Argonian suspicions. Why not just stay here? Hank asked, as Jan began to lead the way out of the little room. She shook her head slightly. Tony needs to eat, too, and I think we should let him and Cap have some time alone, don't you? Why? Hank started to ask, but Clint was nodding in agreement. Oh, he said. Yeah, good idea. They can talk about their feelings like girls at a slumber party, and we won't have to listen. We don't talk about our feelings at slumber parties. We talk about the relative merits of our boyfriend's equipment. Really? Hank couldn't help but ask. Jan patted him on the shoulder, and Hank cringed a little inside with guilt, imagining her reaction when she heard what he, Steve, and Tony had planned. Oh, like you have anything to worry about, handsome. Who else could be any size I want? I didn't actually want to know that, Clint said, making a face, then wincing as it pulled at his bruised and swollen cheek. The three of them were downstairs, seated at a candlelit table in the now-deserted restaurant. The generator didn't provide enough power to light the lobby, and Clint had already finished his first sandwich, making a choked-off, half-sobbing sound at the first bite, and then wolfing it down in about three seconds flat, before Hank thought of a way to bridge the subject of tomorrow's mission. Tony convinced Cap to go along with our plan, he said. He's going back under tomorrow. Clint who'd been making himself a second peanut butter and jelly sandwich with exaggerated care, froze and looked up. 
They'll throw him in a cell and interrogate him. Or cut him up, the way that... He broke off abruptly, then finished, more quietly. It's a suicide mission. Someone needs to go in with him, to distract them while he plants the poison and stuff. I should... No! Jane interrupted, laying a hand on Clint's arm. You've done enough. Let someone else be Tony's distraction. Clint closed his eyes and leaned a little closer to Jan. I can't let Tony go back under alone, he said, voice low and rough. I'm supposed to watch out for him. We'll make sure he eats. Hank was about to point out that Tony wasn't going to be under long enough for that to be a concern. He would either have succeeded or be dead long before food became an issue. When Jan spoke, Clint, she said, very gently, leaning forward and peering into his face. Clint, look at me. Tony isn't your responsibility anymore. You're both out of there. You're safe. Her voice was low, soft, like she was talking to a skittish animal, and familiar in a way that sent little warning bells off in Clint's stomach. The two of them had forgotten he was even there. Listening, Hank almost felt as if he were intruding, which was ridiculous, because it was Jan and Clint's, his wife and his teammate, ex-wife and teammate. Actually, Hank interrupted, feeling himself flush as they both turned to look at him, startled out of their momentary intimacy. Tony is the distraction. Both of them looked blank for a moment, and then Jane realized what he meant. He could see her eyes widen and her expression darken as she did so. Oh my, you're going in with him, aren't you? It was sharp, accusatory. Hank automatically bristled at the tone, then drew in a deep breath and made himself calm down. It was harder than it should have been. Being calm always took effort, but lately it had become even harder. It was being stuck here that did it, being useless. Thinking about sneaking into Grand Central tomorrow was actually a relief. He could finally do something, finally show everyone he wasn't just dead weight. I can sneak in inside Tony's clothing, he said. He'll never even notice me. You can't do it. I'll need to carry the entire supply of chemicals with me. Jan looked stricken, and Hank automatically winced, about to apologize. Though for what? He wasn't sure. Then her eyes narrowed, and she slammed her chair back and jumped to her feet. And you didn't think you might possibly tell me about this before agreeing to do it? Her voice was loud, sharp with disbelief, and Clint flinched in time with Hank. Why was Clint upset? She wasn't angry at him. No one else could do it, Hank protested. He'd known Jan wouldn't be happy that he'd essentially volunteered for this behind her back, but he thought she'd be proud that he was finally doing something, finally pulling his weight. Jan opened and closed her mouth once or twice, silently, then said, I'm going to go get Clint some water. He's probably tired of orange juice. She turned on her heel and stalked away. There was a long, awkward silence while Clint fidgeted with his nearly full glass of orange juice and Hank stared down at the table, face burning. He hated it when people saw him and Jan arguing. So, Clint said flatly, that went well. I shouldn't have just announced it out of the blue like that, 
should I? No, Clint said. Probably not. He regarded Hank steadily, with uncharacteristic seriousness. You know you probably won't come out again. That actually... Hank hadn't really thought about his own chances of survival, but it wasn't like it mattered. He'd be fine. His chances were positively brilliant compared to Tony's. As long as he stuck to the plan, the Argonians would never even know he was there until they were dropping like flies and their shield was down for good. And even if things went horribly wrong and something did happen to him... We're fighting for the survival of humanity, he said. Doesn't matter if I come out if it works. Come on, even I don't have that inflated opinion of myself. Clint's eyes narrowed. You just want the chance to be a martyr. Clint had been spending far too much time around Tony, if that was the first thing that jumped to mind. It will matter to Jan. Clint went on. Hank stared down at his hands and felt very small. If I don't come back... He hesitated, feeling silly for saying something so melodramatic to Clint, of all people, but... Tell Jan I love her. Even if I wasn't always a good husband. Even though I hurt her. Even if she deserved better. He looked at Clint, seeing again the way he'd closed his eyes at Jan's touch. Leaned into her. And, oddly, didn't feel jealous. Hurt, maybe, but... At least if he didn't come back, Jan wouldn't be alone. Tell her I've always loved her, and that if she wants... If she needs someone else, tell her that's okay. Clint's eyes went wide. It was only one kiss, he blurted out. All right. So there was something going on between Clint and Jan. Hank shook his head. It didn't matter right now. He would deal with it when he came back. If he came back. I'm going off to die nobly for my country, he told Clint trying to sound indignant, but mostly just sounding tired. I don't want to hear about it. Clint smirked. Yeah, have fun with that. Then the smirk vanished, and he was the new, serious Clint again. Honestly, nothing happened. Except for the kiss. Hank corrected him, which I don't want to hear about. The less he heard about it, the less he had to think about it. It wasn't like that. Clint stared down at the table, his ears going pink. She was just being nice to me, and not in a slutty way, he added hurriedly. Jan isn't a slut, Hank protested. I know, that's why I said not in a slutty way. You really need to work on your listening skills. Clint shook his head slightly, and turned his orange juice glass in a slow circle, leaving a damp ring on the tablecloth. You should go find out why my water isn't here yet. Find out... Hank blinked at him. What? Clint rolled his eyes. Go talk to Jan. You don't want to leave tomorrow with her angry at you. No, he didn't. I'm just going to... He started. And then something, maybe Clint's gaunt, battered face, made him ask. Look, you don't need anything else, do you? I mean, apart from someone to clean and bandage your arm before it gets infected. Clint shrugged. I'll live. 
Jan already put some hydrogen peroxide on it in the kitchen. One of the refugees here is a doctor. Hank pressed, knowing that Clint had probably cut the tracking chip out of his arm himself with his sword, or some filthy machine tool of Tony's that was covered in engine grease. And, no, I'm good. Clint pointed at his half-eaten sandwich. I'll just finish this and go find somewhere to crash. He hesitated, then. I don't suppose anyone here has a spare bow. I can make arrows if I have to, and improvise a bowstring, as long as I have a bow to start with. Hank winced. No, he said, and watched Clint's face fall, trying not to notice the way he blinked hard and looked away. I'm sorry. Only firearms. Oh. Clint smiled, the shadow of his old, cocky grin. That's okay. I still have better aim than anyone else, even with a gun. Okay, Hank said. That. You can find your way back upstairs, all right? I'll be fine. Go talk to Jan. So Hank went. The kitchen was tiny and cramped, despite the hand-tiled floor and marble countertop. The little wooden table was covered with maps and blueprints of the New York City sewer and subway systems, a scattering of half-dried-out Prismacolor markers, Franklin and Valeria kept leaving the caps off, and a plastic flashlight. One of Wanda's red gloves lay forlornly abandoned on the counter. The dim, gently flickering light of the hurricane lamp, sitting in the center of the square foot of marble counter space where it would do the least damage if knocked over, made the room feel even smaller, but in a way that managed to be cozy instead of claustrophobic. It hid the pallor of Tony's skin and the circles under his eyes, but it couldn't conceal the sharp edges of his cheekbones or the way the gray Argonian-issue lab coat hung on him. Supplies are low right now, Steve said, taking down the metal saucepan from its spot in the cupboard and pulling a package of chicken-flavored ramen from the stack beside it. I'm afraid the best we have is ramen. He felt obscurely guilty that he didn't offer Tony anything better. After months in what amounted to a prison camp, Tony deserved real food, something that had actual ingredients that Steve could identify and pronounce, that didn't come wrapped in plastic. Steve busied himself with filling the pan with water, then with intently watching the water heat, almost painfully aware of Tony standing just a foot or so behind him. He could almost feel Tony's body heat against his back, or maybe that was just his imagination. He felt hyper-aware of Tony after so long away from him, his attention riveted to every sound and movement he made, no matter how small. Having him here, only inches away, was almost too much. Steve wanted to stare at him, to touch him, to drink his presence in with every sense he possessed. Instead, he made himself stare at the water in the saucepan, the bottom of the pan was covered in tiny bubbles now, only a minute or so away from boiling. He very carefully tore open the little packet of flavoring powder and poured it in, then began breaking the block of dried ramen noodles into smaller pieces. That smells incredible, Tony breathed directly into his ear. 
Steve jumped, feeling his face and neck heat. It's only soup, he said as calmly as he could manage as he dropped the broken pieces of ramen into the pot. It's not even very good soup. It's from a plastic package. It's the first food I've seen in months that's not tasteless alien protein mush. It will be wonderful. Tony's voice was wry, amused. Steve turned to look at him, found himself staring into Tony's eyes from only inches away. They looked dark in the lantern light, more gray than blue, and from this close, Steve could count his eyelashes. Tony's lips were slightly parted as he breathed in the smell of Ursat's chicken broth, and Steve found himself unable to look away from them. He found himself wondering, abruptly, if Tony had read his last letter, if Tony knew how he felt about him, had realized what that picture, with Tony's place by his side, and the mention of his sexual preferences that he'd oh so casually slipped in, had meant. Probably not. He hadn't been able to make himself come out and say too much, not when he knew Clint, and probably Jan as well, would be reading the letter. Tony was probably standing so close because the kitchen was so small. He was probably... The water is boiling, Tony said. Steve felt himself flushing again. His face was burning now and had probably gone bright red. Maybe Tony would think it was the heat from the steam. He turned back to the stove... It took an almost physical effort to look away from Tony, and poked at the ramen noodles with a spoon. They moved easily, no longer stiff. It's finished, he said. Go sit down and I'll bring you a bowl. Tony stared at him for a long moment, unmoving, then nodded. Steve sat across the table from him while he ate, doing his level best not to stare at Tony too openly. He actually closed his eyes with pleasure at the first taste of soup, and the sight of his face relaxing with obvious bliss did interesting things to Steve's insides. From Tony's reaction, one would think it was the best thing he had ever eaten. He ate in silence, savoring every bite, and Steve stayed silent as well, letting Tony enjoy the ramen. Watching Tony sit there in Steve's kitchen, eating food he had prepared, filled him with a quiet satisfaction. The fact that he had Tony right here, just across the table from him, that he could reach over and touch him if he wanted to, even knowing that it couldn't last, that Tony would have to leave soon, go back, it was just... nice... He had missed Tony over the past few months, but he hadn't exactly realized how much he'd missed him until now, until he had Tony back again. Tony was sitting with his shoulders rounded forward, hunched in on himself just a little. He had one arm wrapped loosely around his ribs, and Steve, watching, remembered how stiffly he had moved during the escape, like a man trying to conceal an injury. Had he been injured in the escape? There was no blood, but that didn't mean he hadn't been sideswiped by a tail or thrown into something. He might have cracked ribs underneath those two big clothes. Steve ought to check later. He couldn't let Tony go back out into the field with untreated injuries. Re-infiltrating the Argonian base would be difficult even for someone in peak physical condition, and Tony was clearly far from that right now. 
His eyes were bloodshot and bruised looking, his face gaunt, and the hand he held his spoon in was covered in tiny scrapes and burns, most of them angry looking and possibly infected. He hadn't shaved in the past twenty-four hours, his jaw covered in dark stubble that made his goatee look scruffy and ragged instead of stylish, and his hair was shaggy, overly long mess. Looking at him, the golden glow of his skin in the lantern light, the long, graceful fingers, the vulnerable-looking hollow at the base of his throat revealed by the open collar of his shirt and lab coat, made Steve's chest ache. He would be gone again tomorrow, possibly forever, and the pain of that thought was sharp enough that Steve tried to force it out of his mind. Tony was one of the closest friends he had ever had, and without him... He didn't want to imagine Tony dead, didn't know what he would do without him, what he'd do if he didn't have Tony to talk to, to plan with, to help lead the Avengers. Or just sit with him, like this, without needing to say anything. The past four months had given him a taste of it, and Steve had found that it was miserable, almost beyond enduring. He loved Tony. It was more than friendship, even close friendship, more than simple physical attraction. The idea of losing him hurt more than anything Steve had ever known beyond Bucky's death. I should, um, go check on Clint, he blurted out, starting to rise from his chair. And there's some supply lists I need to go over, and... Couldn't you go over them from here? I... Tony trailed off, his voice rough and hesitant, and looked away, down at the table. "'Could you just stay?' he asked, very quietly. "'Please?' He looked up again, with a little half-smile that was sad to watch. "'I haven't talked to anyone but Clint in months.' Steve sat back down again, his chair at a slight angle to the table this time, not facing Tony straight on. He desperately racked his brains for something to say, something that would make the misery he could hear in Tony's voice and read in his body language better. I, uh, he stammered. That must have been... I wanted to. I got your picture, Tony interrupted, looking him in the face once more. I had to destroy it. He dropped his gaze again, and it looked as if he were almost blinking back tears. So, Steve managed, feeling painfully awkward and out of his depth. You read the letter. Tony nodded. What you said, he said slowly, hesitantly, in that last letter. Steve turned his face away, bracing himself for what was about to come. Tony liked women. Tony liked women a lot. He would let Steve down gently, he knew, but he wanted, he wanted, even a gentle letdown was going to hurt. Yes, Steve admitted, feeling his face and ears heat. I, you, you like women, I know. I won't talk about it if it makes you uncomfortable. I know you don't feel the same way. Tony was staring at him blankly. Oh, God, he hadn't figured it out, hadn't realized how Steve felt about him, that he was attracted to him, that... You're joking, right? Tony blurted out. You're the most fucking gorgeous man I've ever met. You're smart and good and so much braver than I am. Do you know how much I've wanted you ever since we unfroze you from the ice? You have? 
Tony wanted him. The idea simultaneously warmed him and sent a throb of heat through him, low in his belly. He was gaping like an idiot he knew, totally unsure how to respond. "'I thought you knew I was bisexual,' Tony said, shaking his head slightly and pointing at Steve with his soup spoon. "'I thought you told me because you knew and thought you could trust me not to freak out.' Steve gave him a silent headshake. "'Oh,' Tony said. "'Then... Why did you tell me? His eyes were fixed on Steve's face now, dark and hopeful. I don't know, Steve managed. Because I love you, he thought, but the words wouldn't form properly. I just... Why was it so hard to say? He glanced down at his hands, flat on the table in front of him, then back up again. There's so many things I've wanted to say to you all this time... I kept thinking of things I wanted to tell you, little things, that weren't important enough to put in letters. And now that you're here, I... He heard himself make a sort of half-laughing sound. At the situation? At himself? I can't think of anything to say. He shook his head again. Tony had enough to deal with right now, and the last thing Steve wanted to do was add something else to the list. I'm sorry... All I've done the past two months is whine at you. Tony reached across the table and laid his hand on top of Steve's. His fingers were cool and dry, and Steve wanted nothing more than to turn his hand over and take Tony's hand in his. No, Tony said. He tightened his fingers around Steve's hand for a moment. Your letters kept me sane. I would have... His voice cracked, and he broke off, glancing away, then met Steve's eyes again and said, "'Without them, I would have given up months ago. I never would have made it this far.'" Tony never admitted to needing any kind of help, hated admitting to weakness. "'You don't have to go back,' Steve blurted out. "'I could—' "'No,' Tony interrupted, almost gently. "'You couldn't. They'd shoot you on sight.'" Steve swallowed, very aware of the feel of Tony's hand on his. He made himself look directly into Tony's eyes, trying to memorize their shape and color in case he never got to see them again like this. I don't want to lose you. Tony closed his eyes, almost flinching. After a long moment, he opened them again and reached up with his free hand to touch the side of Steve's face, fingertips just grazing the skin. Steve. He couldn't do this. He'd already lost too many people. Steve turned his face away from Tony's touch and pulled his hand back out of Tony's grasp. We've lost too many people already. Tony stood, his chair scraping backwards across the floor tiles and rounded the corner of the table, stopping directly in front of Steve. Then, without a word of warning, he was practically crawling onto Steve's lap, facing him and straddling his legs. Tony was a heavy weight on his thighs, even obviously undernourished as he was, warm and solid and there. His face was only inches away from Steve's, far closer than Steve was used to seeing him. He could see every eyelash, see the tiny, tired lines at the corner of his eyes, the fine red line that split his bottom lip. Something must have hit him in the face during the escape, because it hadn't been there when he'd first seen Tony in the hallway. 
In this position, Tony was slightly taller than Steve. It wasn't a perspective he was used to seeing Tony from, and he found himself tipping his head back. And then Tony was bending his head down and pressing his mouth to Steve's lips slightly parted. Steve froze, not sure what to do. He'd never expected anything like this. In all his fantasies of what it might be like to touch Tony, hold Tony, kiss Tony, he'd never really thought about what he would do if it actually happened. He hadn't thought things through that far. He could feel Tony go still as he failed to respond. Before Tony could move away, Steve placed one hand firmly against the small of Tony's back and tangled the other in his hair, holding him in place. Then he closed his eyes and started kissing back for all he was worth. Tony's mouth was hot against his as Steve thrust his tongue inside it, tasting the metallic tang of blood and Tony's hand was cool against his face, while his other hand ran slowly down Steve's side, fingers curling into his hip. Tony shifting his weight deliberately and Steve moaned, already achingly hard. It had been months since anyone had touched him this way and this was Tony. Tony's hands on him, Tony's goatee scratching against his face, Tony's body rubbing against his... Tony was pulling away, trying to lift his head. Steve tightened his grip in Tony's hair and leaned further upward, closing the distance again, slowly running his tongue across the cut on Tony's lip. Tony pushed against his shoulders with both hands, and Steve reluctantly let go, opening his eyes. I thought you knew, Tony repeated, his voice breathy. His pupils were dilated, making his eyes look wide and dark. I thought you told me because you knew. Steve shook his head silently, too dazed to think of a response. Yeah, I figured that out. Tony's lips twitched. Steve couldn't seem to look away from them, the sheen of saliva over the cut drawing his eye like a magnet. He could still feel those lips against his own, his mouth tingling with it. So, Tony went on, why did you tell me? Because... Steve trailed off, feeling his face flush. He dropped his gaze to Tony's chest for a second, then looked back up into his eyes. You deserve to know how I felt about you. Feel. Tony lowered his head an inch or two until his forehead was resting against Steve's. And how do you feel? He breathed. I put you next to me in the picture, Steve managed after a moment. I thought it was obvious. Tony kissed him again, deep and hot and hard, hard enough that Steve could taste more blood in his mouth as their teeth clashed together. He broke the kiss much too soon and said fiercely, Vance wasn't your fault, Steve. Nothing that happens to me will be your fault either. You can't fight a war like this without casualties. I know that, Steve said and tightened his grip on Tony. Tony's hand brushed against his face. I know you do. Steve closed his eyes and leaned into the touch. It doesn't make it any easier. No, Tony said, and kissed him again. Chapter 15 
Tony's hands were making fast work of his belt when Steve belatedly realized that the kitchen might not be the best place for this. When he pointed this out to Tony, Tony had rebutted with a suggestion of his own. After Steve reminded him that other people had to use the kitchen table, he shrugged and let Steve lead him through the now empty dining room and down to the short hallway to the bedroom Steve usually shared with Hank, Simon, and Johnny, which, thank God, was currently empty. If it hadn't been, Steve had been prepared to drag Tony into the ridiculously large linen closet and rip the ugly gray Argonian clothing off him. Steve closed the door firmly behind them, hampered slightly by Tony's attempts to remove bits of his costume. He towed off his boots, pulled off one glove with his teeth while Tony removed the other one, planting an open-mouthed kiss on the inside of his wrist that made Steve's entire arm tingle and reached for the buttons on Tony's shirt. The first button came loose as he pulled at it, tearing away from the fabric, and he tried to be more careful with the others, deliberately making himself slow down. Tonight might be all they had. He had to make it last, make it as good as possible for both of them. If memories ended up being all he had of Tony to hold on to, they were going to be damn good memories. Then the rest of their clothes were on the floor, and Tony was kissing him again. Steve lost himself in the kiss, hot, hard, and unhurried. Tony thrust his tongue into his mouth, dug his fingers into Steve's shoulders, and backed him toward the bed, breaking the kiss just long enough to plant his hands in the center of Steve's chest and shove him down onto it. Then Steve was flat on his back on the bed, with Tony on top of him, mimicking their earlier positions in the chair, but this time horizontal, with less clothing and much, much closer contact. I thought I'd never see you again, Tony whispered hoarsely as he kissed Steve's throat, his collarbone, the center of his chest. I thought I'd never get out of there. I wanted to come get you, Steve told him. I wanted to. Then Tony wrapped his hands around him, around both of them, and he broke off with a strangled little moan that might have been embarrassing were it not for the look on Tony's face. Eyes half-lidded, lips parted, Tony looked every inch the infamously debauched playboy his reputation painted him as, his face wrapped as he stared at Steve through his eyelashes. Tony, Steve panted. Slow down. I want this to last. And it wouldn't if Tony kept doing that. Right, Tony said, sliding his fingers up and down again this time with excruciating slowness. Slow. Slow is good. I can do slow. Steve closed his eyes, his back arching and his hips jerking upwards. Tony let go and crawled his way, slowly, up Steve's body to kiss him again, sucking Steve's low lip into his mouth, the hard length of him pressing into Steve's stomach. 
Steve took hold of Tony's upper arms and rolled them both sideways, flipping them over so that he was now looking down at Tony, lying on his back on top of the sheets. Tony stared up at him, pupils dilated wide, and grinned. I thought you wanted to go slow, he said. Not that slow, Steve told him, hearing his voice come out low and rough. He drew in a deep breath that did nothing whatsoever to calm his body down and added, If I'd known this was going to happen, I would have been prepared. We don't have any, well, anything. Tony smirked up at him, a satisfied, cocky expression that was almost a leer. You're immune to almost every naturally occurring virus known to man. What are we going to catch from each other? That wasn't what I meant, Steve started. Tony was definitely leering now. I once managed to have sex with a woman while wearing a giant piece of metal over my chest without her ever noticing the breastplate existed. I think I can come up with a few things to do that won't require any lube. Much later, Steve lay on his back and let himself melt into the mattress, too worn out and blissful to move. He knew he should get up and put some pants back on before any of the room's other occupants came back and clean himself and Tony, and the sheets, up. But Tony was a heavy weight on top of him, almost uncomfortably warm, his face buried in Steve's neck and fine tremors running through his body and Steve couldn't make himself move. He rubbed small circles on Tony's back with his fingertips instead, enjoying the feel of Tony's skin. His back was smooth, untouched by the scars that crisscrossed the center of his chest, making the dark hair there grow at odd angles. Perfect and whole, except for the ragged circle of scar tissue high on his back, right next to his spine, where an extremely unpleasant ex-girlfriend had shot him. He had died last year to stop Immortus from taking over the world, and Franklin Richards had brought him back, but the scars remained. Maybe they were part of how Tony saw himself. He had wanted this for so long, without even knowing exactly why he wanted it, and now he couldn't stop staring at Tony, couldn't stop touching him. Anything could happen tomorrow, so tonight he wanted to make sure he remembered how Tony's hair felt between his fingers, how he tasted, the way his skin glowed golden in the lantern light. You have no idea how much I missed you. Tony mumbled into his neck, burrowing further into Steve. I meant to break out sooner to find you better information. I should have done more. His voice was very quiet and slightly shaky, his breath hitching once or twice. Steve continued to rub slow circles on his back, wondering why, after seeming fine, more than fine, throughout the sex and throughout the meeting before that, Tony was falling apart now. You did more than enough. You're doing more than enough tomorrow. Tony lifted his head a few inches, just enough to let him look Steve in the eye. No, interrupted Tony with a passable approximation of his old slightly snide humor. Hank and I are going alone and you can't come. I know, 
Steve sighed, as Tony buried his face in his shoulder again. He needed to stay outside to lead the attack against Grand Central after Hank delivered the poison. It was too important to leave to someone else. None of the others had the training or experience for it. Carol could do it, maybe, but it wouldn't be fair or right to put that on her. He had sent teammates into mortal danger before, had sent men and women to their deaths at the hands of the Argonians and the Germans long before that. He could send Tony back into captivity tomorrow. He didn't have to like it, though. Then something else occurred to him. Do you think Jan knows about Hank's role in this plan? She probably does now, Tony said wryly. The faint tremors that racked his muscles were easing, and he sounded more sleepy and content than shaky and haunted. Steve reminded himself again that he ought to get up, and again couldn't make himself do so. He watched the shifting light from the kerosene lantern create moving shadows on Tony's back, in the hollow of his spine and beneath his shoulder blades, and lower where the covers were tangled between his legs. Tony's breathing was starting to deepen, edging towards sleep, when Steve realized that several of what he'd thought were shadows were actually bruises, most of them old, but some of them, on his hips, his biceps, his wrists, brand new, slowly darkening from red to purple. He drew in a sharp breath, stiffening, and Tony stirred slightly. "'What is it?' he mumbled. "'You're covered in bruises.' Steve said softly, tracing one of the marks on Tony's hip with his fingertips. He should have had more self-control, should have remembered that Tony was in worse condition right now than either of them really wanted to acknowledge. Hank says orange juice will fix that. Tony's voice was still thick with sleep and utterly unconcerned. Some of them are from me, Steve protested with an uneasy prickle of guilt as he took in the extent of the damage. Tony had already been battered enough. He didn't need Steve adding to his injuries. I know, Tony said, and the smug satisfaction in his voice was palpable. He sounded so much like his old self that for a moment, Steve could almost forget the past four months. That was the tone he had always used when trying to get an embarrassed blush out of Steve, a mock flirtatious tone, always accompanied by appreciative glance or even an open leer, that Steve was only now realizing had actually been dead serious. Then, Tony sighed a little and went limp, finally asleep. When had he lost so much weight? Tony frowned at his reflection in the suite's massive bathroom mirror, and tried to remember if his collarbones had looked that prominent before. Probably not. He did look a lot less better than the last time he'd seen himself in a mirror, though the faint scar on his cheek was something he could have lived without. Ditto the hair, which had passed needs a trim some time ago and was well on its way to becoming nothing but a shaggy mess. <laughs> I look awful, he observed. Smiling at Steve in the mirror, Steve didn't smile back. Hank says it will take 36 hours for the poison to fully take effect on most of the Argonians. Do you think you can fool them for that long? What he was really asking, Tony knew, was whether he could hold out under torture for that long if it became necessary. He'd like to think he could. 
he'd held up under the worst the Mandarin had been able to dish out on more than one occasion. But everyone could be broken. The best he could do was try. He knew that wasn't what Steve wanted to hear, though, so he didn't say it. Steve wanted some kind of reassurance, even if he wasn't going to admit it. I'll be fine, Tony lied. I've fooled them for this long, haven't I? He glanced at his reflection again. I think a bruise or two might make my The scary rebels try to take me hostage story go over better, though. I'm not going to hit you, Steve said firmly. Tony turned around, looking Steve in the eye. If I go back in, looking none the worse for wear, they're never going to believe that I didn't go with you guys willingly. Steve looked away, face flushing slightly. He knew it was true. He was too good a strategist not to have thought of the obvious. I can't, he started, then broke off, and said, after a moment of hesitation, I don't want to hurt you. Carol and Ben are too strong to pull their punches properly. It wouldn't be fair to ask Clint to do it after he'd spent the last four months trying to protect me, and I will not ask Hank to hit a teammate. There's no one else, Steve. Please. Steve closed his eyes for a second, looking pained. Haven't I already put enough bruises on you? Tony had to smirk then, feeling a rush of heat go through him all over again at the memory of Steve's hands on his body. None that my clothes won't cover. And I'm hoping they don't know what hickeys mean. Because I think that would probably hurt my cover more than it helps it. Steve's lips twitched. That's not funny, he said. And then, you're sure about this? He wasn't just asking if Tony was sure he wanted to be punched in the face, Tony knew. Yes, Tony said, I'm sure. Steve took a deep breath, visibly squaring his shoulders. All right, he said. Let's do this before I come to my senses. Tony set both hands against the marble countertop behind him, bracing himself, and closed his eyes. Steve had hit him before, of course, in hand-to-hand -hand practice. But never in the face, and never this hard, with the intent to cause visible damage. Tony stayed limp, letting the force of the blow turn his head sideways and rock him back against the sink. But it still stunned him for a second. He opened his eyes, straightening and putting one hand to his hotly throbbing cheek. Thank you, he said quietly. Steve flinched. So Tony kissed him. He couldn't think of anything to say to make this better, but kissing was always good. Steve was big and solid and warm, and Tony had to fight the desire to cling to him, to close his eyes and bury himself in the feel of Steve's arms around him, and the almost forgotten luxury of human contact, of feeling safe. He knew what the Argonians did to people they suspected of being traitors. If this went wrong, then when they were through with him, there wouldn't be anything recognizable left to bury. Steve hugged him hard, holding him so tightly it was almost painful. Then he let go abruptly, taking a step back. Hank is probably waiting, he said. Everyone was waiting, Hank included. Even Johnny Storm was there, leaning on a pair of crutches, with Reed Richards' two little blonde kids hiding behind him. Tony had this vague feeling that he should know their names, but he couldn't think of anything at the moment beyond the mission and Steve. At least he'd gotten to see him again one more time. 
gotten to be with him in a way he had never thought would be possible. It might have almost seemed like a dream if he hadn't had the twinge of bruises on his hips and arms to remind him. Steve's marks, hidden under his clothes, to carry back into captivity with him. He knew how vital this was. Knew he was the only person who could do it. Knew he owed it to all those people still stuck down in the converter room, and to everyone who had died at Argonian hands, to make up for losing his nerve before. But that didn't make going back any easier, especially now, when he knew exactly what he was walking away from. What he could have if he stayed. It had been easy the first time. He hadn't any other options then. Now. But if he stayed, if he let someone else go in his place, he wouldn't be worthy of Steve's friendship and respect, let alone his love. What happened to your face? Clint asked, oblivious to Steve's wince. Verisimilitude, Tony said wryly. You brutally attacked me when you forced me to leave the factory in your company. Well, I have Argonian warrior training, Clint smirked. <clears throat> I do that. Then his smile faded, and he dropped his gaze, staring at the floor. I... Good luck. You too, Hank. He held out his hand for Tony to shake, which he did. Then turned and silently offered it to Hank, who was standing somewhat forlornly in the middle of the foyer his Ant-Man helmet tucked under one arm. Hank blinked at him for a second, then took the offered hand. Thanks, he said. Where are you going? The voice was very small and high-pitched. Tony looked down to see Valeria standing right by Hank's knee. How had she gotten that close without anyone knowing? One hand clutching a bundle of what looked like Steve's beloved prismacolored markers. The yellow one was missing its cap. I, um, Hank stammered, clearly at a loss for how to explain. Tony could empathize. How did you explain a suicide mission to a four-year-old? Jan took a step forward, dropping to one knee to put herself at Valeria's level. They're going to do something very important, she said, to make the bad people go away. But they'll be back soon. She cast a meaningful glance up at Hank. And they'll be fine. Hank reached down with one hand and touched her hair lightly. Jan, he started. Don't. She rose to her feet and took a step back. Just come back. Hank's face crumpled for a second. Then he gave her a bright and obviously fake smile. Sure, Jenny, I'll be back. Jan raised one hand, as if she were about to reach out to him, then pulled it back. I'll hold you to that, blue eyes. Hank's grin was real this time. He was so desperate for approval most of the time that it was almost sad. That is, when he wasn't being frighteningly overconfident. You better... Tony began. I know. Hank set the Ant-Man helmet over his head. It looked incongruously out of place, paired with his blue and yellow Goliath costume, and began shrinking. When he reached a barely visible two inches high, Tony knelt down and held a hand out to him. Like Jan in wasp form, Hank at this size weighed nearly nothing. Tony watched him climb onto his palm, and then, when he was sure Hank was properly balanced, stood up again. Steve was watching him silently, his arms folded across his chest. 
Tony wanted to touch him so badly that it almost hurt. But a glance at Steve's frigid shoulders and tightly locked jaw told him not to. Steve was trying his level best to stay focused and businesslike, to not let his feelings show. I'll be waiting for your signal, all right? Spider-Man's words came out in a nervous rush. Tony had to tilt his head back in order to see him, crouched against the ceiling like a twitchy red and blue gargoyle. I'm even staying in the hotel so my spidey sense doesn't get triggered by accident. So if I sense anything, I'll know it's you. Trust me. Even at two inches tall, that particular manic grin was disturbingly familiar. You'll know. Spider-Man made a strangled little sound of alarm and nearly fell off the ceiling. That was mean, he yelped. I mean, totally uncalled for. Do you have that thing dialed up to eleven or what? I had to make sure you noticed it, Hank said. You're a lot bigger than an ant. Then, in a slightly apologetic tone, Sorry I can't refine it any further. You don't have antenna. That's okay, Spider-Man said, waving one hand dismissively. How could he carry on a conversation while upside down like that? Tony wondered, then dismissed the thought. It wasn't important. Steve, he said. Good luck, Steve said, his voice slightly strained. His eyes met Tony's and held them. We'll be waiting for Hank's signal. There was nothing more to say after that. Tony gently placed Hank inside the pocket of his gray lab coat, now greatly the worse for wear, and left the suite. It felt odd to walk around outside again, after so long indoors and underground. The wind was bitingly cold, cutting straight through his thin lab coat as if it were nothing, and the heavily overcast sky seemed impossibly high up almost dizzyingly so. Nothing moved in the streets but foot traffic, and little enough of that. Tony, hatless and coatless and utterly freezing, shoved his hands in his lab coat's pockets and trudged down the sidewalk, trying not to shiver as snowflakes caught in his hair and dusted his shoulders. Why do you have pieces of wire in your pocket? Hank's voice drifted up to him from his breast pocket, and something sharp poked him in the chest as one of said wires was shifted around. You could have taken them out before dropping me. Shh, Tony interrupted. We're almost there. Grand Central loomed in front of him, looking surprisingly ominous in the sourceless, snow-filled light. The sculpture that capped the front of the building's facade, Mercury flanked by Minerva, and a not very accurate statue of Hercules, made him think of gargoyles, rather than the classical sculpture it was imitating. The clock in the middle had stopped at thirteen minutes past ten. Guess this is it, then, Hank said, voice barely audible. I'm going to put you down now, Tony told him, staring across the street at the heavily armed quartet of guards, two human and two Argonian, who stood at the front entrance, any closer than they'd notice. He lifted Hank out of his pocket as carefully as he could, painfully conscious of how small Hank was, and how easy it would be to hurt him or drop him, and lifted his hand to eye level so that he and Hank could look at one another. Good luck, High Pockets, he said, the silly old nickname feeling awkward in his mouth. We're counting on you. We'll get you back out in no time, Tony. Just hang in there until we can. Don't die, he meant. Remember, Tony said, the filtration systems on one of the Metro North platforms 
I don't know which one, but it shouldn't be hard to find. Then he lowered his hand and let Hank climb into the lowest pocket on his lab coat, just below the hip, where he could climb down more easily. The walk across the street towards the station felt as if it took forever. Tony kept his pace slow, hands held out in plain sight, away from his body. The guard stiffened as he approached, and one of the Argonians pointed a plasma gun at him and snapped a harsh command in her native language. Tony obediently stopped dead, holding completely still as the two human guards approached, swords drawn. How the hell did you get outside? One of them demanded. You guys are supposed to be in the basement. He was a redhead, Tony noted absently. Fitting. He and the Argonians matched. Christ, the other guard said suddenly, the words bursting out of him. You're Tony Stark, aren't you? I thought they moved you to the weapons factory. They did. Sounding tired and haunted took no effort at all. They came there, the rebels. They killed most of the guards and then tried to drag me off with them. He reached up to touch the fresh bruise on his face, then winced. They called me a traitor, and they... He broke off, shivering. It was from the cold, but hopefully the guard would think it was the trauma of what the rebels had done to him. Then stammered, it, it took me until this morning to get away. <laughs> Your superhero friends you used to give money to kidnapped you? The redhead snorted. Do you think I'm a fucking idiot? What really happened? Did you try to defect only to find out they didn't want traitors who'd already double-crossed their old bosses? He turned to the Argonian guards, who still had their plasma guns aimed at Tony, and said something in Argonian. The highest-ranking guard, twin knots of copper sparkling dully on each shoulder, said something, and the redhead nodded back. Gage, he snapped at the other guard, get some handcuffs on him. Gage slapped the restraints, big, heavy things meant for Argonians, on Tony's wrists with more force than was strictly necessary. This wasn't so bad, Tony told himself. They hadn't believed his story about being kidnapped, but the human guards thinking he'd been spurned by the resistance and come crawling back was better than their suspecting the truth. The Argonians yanked him inside the building roughly, claws digging into his arms, and Tony stumbled, trying to keep up with them, but offered no resistance. It galled, but he'd been suppressing the urge to say anything for months, and doing so would just give them an excuse to hit him. Obedience would probably buy him at least a little more time before the pain started. He felt a faint tug at his lab coat, as Hank climbed out of the pocket and slid down the fabric to the ground. Tony resisted the temptation to look down. He wasn't going to give Hank's presence away. "'Where are you taking me?' he asked, trying to keep their attention on him sounding frightened, galled, when he normally did everything he could not to let his enemies know he was afraid. But he wasn't being Iron Man anymore, or the head of Stark Industries, who had to maintain his calm in meetings at all times. He was Tony Stark, obliging servant of the Argonian Empire, and he needed them to underestimate him. The head Argonian snarled something again, and the red-headed guard grinned nastily at Tony. Most of the human guards who had volunteered to serve the Argonians were vicious thugs or otherwise unpleasant individuals. Not surprising, considering that they were actively betraying their entire species. Like the Kingpin's better-paid employees, though, they were highly competent vicious thugs. The Argonians wouldn't tolerate anything less. 
someplace where people can find out what you know about that attack. They dragged him through the main terminal, and down one of the hallways that had once been lined with shops, then down several flights of stairs, and into the first level of the subway station. The signs directing people to different lines hadn't been removed, but the turnstiles were long gone, as were the kiosks that had once sold metro cards and train tickets. What was new was the row of metal cells that had been built against one wall in a section of unused track. Unlike everything else Argonian built Tony had seen, they were utterly devoid of ornamentation. No windows either, just a small grate in the door. It would be dark inside them, and probably damp too, considering the location. Subway platforms were always damp, and cold, this time of year. The Argonians nearly threw him into the cell, one of them helping him along with a blow from his tail. Tony landed on his knees on the concrete floor, just managing to catch himself with his hands before he fell flat on his face. At least they tied them in front of him. The door closed behind him with a dull clang, and he was left in darkness. There was nothing to do now but wait. Isamud rubbed at his burning eyes with the back of his hand, blinking until the tiny pieces of circuitry he was looking at came into focus again. It seemed like forever since he'd slept. Everyone had been on high alert since the disaster at the weapons facility, and he'd had to work through the entire day just trying to salvage something usable out of the warped and mangled remains of the engines and missile parts the human rebels had left behind. At least they'd all been brought back down to the converter room for him to examine, so he hadn't had to go above ground. He hated doing that, especially in daylight. It made him feel exposed, vulnerable, and he was always painfully conscious that he was half-blinded by the bright light while any human rebels who might be lurking in the dizzyingly tall buildings could see perfectly. One of Kamani's warriors had been transferred from Brooklyn, he said that the humans there liked to use the upper floors of tall buildings as hiding places and fire their projectile guns out the windows at you. He had been overworked even before the attack, trying to fulfill his usual duties without Tony Stark to rely on for advice, while simultaneously maintaining the miniature shield that had surrounded the cells of the super-powered rebel captives. Now he wasn't sure he'd ever be able to find the time to sleep again. Nine Mechanicos had been killed in the attack, including the senior Mechanicos who had been stationed there, so not only were half the things Isamud was trying to repair or cannibalize for parts mangled to the point of being unrecognizable, there was often no one left who'd even known what they were in the first place. Tony would have known, but Tony was gone, either killed when the weapons facility had burned or taken by the rebels. If even a fraction of the rumors about what the rebels did to people they got their hands on were true, he could be dying in agony at that very moment. It was weak and unworthy of him to waste grief on someone who wasn't Argonian, but Tony could have been one, had been only days away from being granted the honor of citizenship and elevated to Mechanicos. Had that happened, his name would now be inscribed on the polished floor in the Archon's throne room where the names of those fallen in battle were carved. For the Archon, in an astonishing break with precedent, had ordered the names of nine dead Mechanicos carved there, too. For the first time in generations, the names of Mechanicos would be remembered. 
Tony Stark's name, though, would be forgotten, despite all he had done to help the Archon restore Argon's glory. And the Archon would do so, Isamud was certain. They would rise from the ashes of this defeat stronger than before, more united than before. He just wished he still had someone to talk to. Mama too. It wasn't a shout, not exactly, but Arch-Captain Kamani's voice still echoed off the stone ceiling, and Isamud was certain that he was not the only one in the cavern who flinched. Mama too, she repeated, leaving the other Arch-Captain's title off once more, an act of deliberate disrespect. Have you been to the weapons facility yet, Mama too, or have you just hidden from your failure down here? All noise in the room ceased as everyone turned to stare at her, standing by the elevator to the upper levels with her back straight and her ears laid back. She looked more threatening than Isamud had ever seen her. The arch-captain was usually mild and self-effacing, at least for a warrior, but now her fur bristled and her tail was lashing angrily. Mamatu turned toward her with a snarl, ears laid back against her head. What did you just say? Do you need me to repeat myself? Kamani asked with a flick of her tail. You have given me insult repeatedly, in both large ways and small, and given the Archon insult, and I have borne it because you were my superior and because the Imperator respected your skill. I will not bear the shame of a defeat this massive, and nor should your command. Isamud's own ears were laid back now, and he had to fight the urge to duck behind something, to make himself as small as possible. He would not shame himself that way, not when the violence in the room wasn't even aimed at him. What was Kamani doing? She was forcing Mamatu to fight her, for no one could let such a terrible insult go unchallenged. Why would she? She couldn't beat Arch-Captain Mamatu. No one could beat Mamatu. How dare you speak to me that way, Mamatu hissed, her entire body stiff with fury. I challenge you, you jumped-up little coward. Here and now, I challenge you. Give me satisfaction for that insult. Kamani shook her head. No, she said coldly. I challenge you. I call you unfit for command, Arch-Captain Mamatu and unworthy of the rank the Empire has bestowed upon you. I invoke the right of trial by combat. Defend your authority, Arch-Captain, or I and all others here shall cease to recognize it. Someone gasped, the noise standing out clearly in the otherwise silent room. Warriors swore to defend their right to hold whatever rank they were given with their lives. If they were called upon to prove their fitness to command in single combat and lost, then whatever authority they possessed was gone. Official demotion invariably followed. Once, a victorious challenger w would have won the right to assume the defeated warrior's rank and position, provided it was higher than their own. That part of the law was no longer followed, but the rest of it remained in force. To lose an official challenge of one's authority was to lose that authority completely and utterly. You've always had an inflated opinion of yourself, Kamani. 
Mamatu snapped. Do you really think you can beat me? Kamani smiled, her teeth gleaming very white against her dark fur. I know I can. You only got your rank in the first place by toadying up to the Imperator like a Mechanicos who wants a favor. Mamatu had both her blades drawn now, one in each hand. Kamani drew her own sword, movement slow and deliberate, never taking her eyes off the other officer. Mamatu snapped an order, and one of her subordinates scurried out to mark a circle on the concrete floor with chalk. It was barely visible against the concrete, but it would suffice. Both Kamani and Mamatu had surely fought enough duels at this point in their lives to know the diameter of a dual circle intimately. The circle, Isamud knew, was more for form's sake than anything. The proprieties had to be observed, after all. The two of them circled one another, moving slowly and warily, Kamani with perfect smoothness and stillness, her movements flowing like water, and Mamatu stalking with a predatory glide, her tail still lashing with rage. Mamatu struck first almost too quickly for Isamu to follow, and he only realized that he'd stopped breathing when the clang of her blade, catching in the notch of Kamani's sword, echoed off the walls, and he let out a silent breath of relief. As a Mechanicos, it would be improper for him to show favoritism in a dispute between warriors, but he couldn't help it. Kamani respected him. Mamatu treated him, and all other Mechanicos, as if they were barely Argonian at all. Then the two of them were a blur of flashing blades and fluid movement and sweeping, vicious blows with their tails. "'You are going to pay for this disrespect,' Mamatu snarled, her tail lashing out in an arc intended to catch Kamani across the ankles and knock her feet out from under her. Kamani jumped, Mamatu's tail passing harmlessly under her feet, and kicked outwards, the heel of her boot catching Mamatu in the chest." It was a risky move under other circumstances. Had Mamatu not had a sword in each hand, she could have grabbed Kamani by the ankle and taken her down easily. But as it was, Mamatu staggered back a step, giving Kamani room to launch another attack, which was quickly beaten back. Kamani was more athletic, jumping over and rolling under blows, weaving in and out between Mamatu's blades and tail barb like a dancer. But Mamatu was faster, her swords moving so quickly they blurred, and she used her tail more effectively than any warrior Isamud had ever seen. It, not the swords, was her primary weapon. Her blade work was impressive, but it was the strikes with her tail that were truly a thing of beauty to behold. It was said that she had stabbed the warrior who'd given her the scars on her face through the throat with her tail barb. It was how she had earned the rank of arch-captain. "'You will grovel,' Marmatu snarled. "'You will bare your throat to me and beg for mercy, you little Mechanicos lover.' Her swords flashed, and a slash appeared across Kamani's left sleeve, the fabric gaping open to reveal a thin line of blood. Kamani dodged the next blow, jumped another attempt to knock her off her feet with a tail-sweep, and caught a third pair of blows on her swords. The two of them struggled for a moment, blades locked, and Isamud's breath caught in his throat, 
his stomach sinking as he realized that there was no way Kamani could win a contest of brute strength against the taller, heavier Mamatu. Kamani hooked one foot around Mamatu's ankle and pulled, like a tail sweep, but done with a foot instead of a tail. The other warrior went down, overbalancing. She rolled to her feet again immediately, swords ready, her ears completely flat to her skull and her eyes burning with rage. Kamani laughed. I learned that from a human, she said, a mocking lilt to her voice. The one you wouldn't agree to transfer to my command. Maybe if you bothered to pay attention to them, you would have learned a thing or two as well, and the weapons facility would still be standing. Mamatu growled and lunged for Kamani again, nearly succeeding in driving her out of the circle. But I am remiss, Kamani went on, her familiar mild tone sounding almost playful despite the strain evident in it. She was panting now, her black uniform torn in three different places. You can't learn, can you? I had forgot. You're nothing but Nurgle's attack dog. Mamatu gave a wordless snarl and threw herself at Kamani, fangs bared, flailing at her with her tail. The blow was wild, uncontrolled, but it struck home anyway, the tip of her tail barb catching in the fabric of Kamani's uniform. Kamani slashed downward with her sword, and there was a howl from Mamatu, as the final octave of her tail was severed cleanly, falling to the floor with a slightly wet-sounding thump. Mamatu howled again, lashing her truncated tail wildly, a spray of blood flying from it in a wide arc. She had bare minutes to finish the fight now before the flow of blood from the wound finished her. Kamani tensed, her weight shifting on the balls of her feet, and even Isamud could tell that she was telegraphing her next attack, and that the right side was completely unguarded. Mamatu seized the opportunity, the long blade in her left hand slicing down into Kamani's thigh, and Kamani dropped the shorter of her two swords, grabbed her by the wrist, and hauled her in closer, stabbing her remaining sword upwards into Mamatu's torso with so much force that the tip of the blade emerged from the back of her uniform, right between her shoulder blades. Mamatu fell to her knees, blood bubbling out of her mouth as she made thick, wet, choking noises. Then she collapsed face down on the floor. Her tail continued twitching for a moment, blood still pumping from its severed end, and then she was still. The silence was deafening. Duels were commonplace amongst warriors. Duels to the death were less common, but far from a rarity. Mamatu herself had killed no less than thirteen opponents in ritual combat. Duels to the death over questions of authority, however, were rare. Much better, it was generally thought to leave a defeated opponent alive and shamed, to enjoy the humiliation of losing their rank and exist as a continual reminder of the victor's triumph. Perhaps Kamani had simply been unable to defeat Mamatu without killing her. Or perhaps she had realized that a shamed and resentful Mamatu would be an even worse enemy than she had been when in power. 
With slow, deliberate movements, Kamani wiped her swords clean on the back of Mamatu's uniform tunic and sheathed them once more. The silence lasted another long, frozen moment, and then one of the humans let out a wild cheer, followed by a grunt of pain as one of the guards hit her. Isamud found himself grinning widely, not caring how disrespectful it was for a human slave to rejoice at an Argonian's death. He wanted to cheer as well. Instead, he very carefully laid the warped piece of metal he'd held forgotten in his hands for the duration of the fight down on his workbench and crossed the blood-spattered dueling circle to where Kamani stood, head down and hands and fists at her sides. The right leg of her uniform trousers was wet with blood, and her entire body was stiff with effort not to show pain or weakness. Isamud thought that she had never looked more powerful or more beautiful. Arch-Captain, he said softly, ears and tail submissively low, not meeting her eyes. You are injured. Let me serve you. Kamani lifted her head, unclenched her hands, and let him lead her over to his workbench. That, she observed softly, went better than I expected. Isamud blinked. He had never heard a warrior admit to doubt or lack of confidence before. I would offer congratulations on your victory, he said diffidently as he cut the torn fabric of her trouser open further, exposing the deep slash in the muscles of her thigh. I am honored to accept them, she said, inclining her head. She fell silent then, while Isamud devoted his entire attention to the task of cleaning the blood off her leg and out of her fur, with disinfectant from his first aid kit, his ears twitching with embarrassment at the shock of being addressed as an equal. Locating the water filtration system took nearly two hours, and left Hank desperately wishing that it weren't the middle of January. Had it not been winter, he could have summoned some ants to help him search. As it was, he had to canvas the various Metro-North platforms on foot, and at this size, that took a very long time. He finally located it on Track 36, just past the Station Master's office. The entrance to the platform was under guard, of course, but Hank was small enough to pass unnoticed, as long as he stayed close to the walls. Once inside, he snuck around until the bulk of the filtration system hid him from view, and returned to normal size. This was the dangerous part. Getting the sodium ascorbate into the system's filters might take as little as 15 minutes, or it might take an hour depending on how complex the system was, and he would be highly visible the entire time. Hank started to grin as he began inspecting the nest of metal piping and copper tubing, and the large enclosed tanks that held the final product. The heady rush of energy that Mission Adrenaline always brought with it hummed through him. That, combined with the knowledge that the Argonians' defeat was less than 48 hours away, made him want to laugh, to dance, to punch the air with glee. Except that would get him caught. The knowledge that Tony was probably being tortured right that very moment was like a cold bucket of water over his glee. Hank shuddered, his smile vanishing, and got to work.
In the end, properly sabotaging the filtration system took him 45 minutes. The first 15 of those minutes were fun. The final half hour was nerve-wracking. By the time Hank screwed the final filter and its new, lethal content, well, incapacitating, lethal would have required twice the amount of poison, back into place, his neck and shoulders were knotted so tight with tension that a dull ache had settled between his shoulder blades. Shrinking down again was a relief. The most vital part of the mission was over now, successfully accomplished. Whatever happened to him and Tony from this point on, they had done what they had been sent to do. Now the hard part began. Now he needed to find somewhere to hide while he waited for the poison to take effect. Thirty-six hours of waiting and watching, with nothing to do but hope that his sabotage wouldn't be discovered until it was too late. If he hadn't known what the Argonians were probably doing to Tony, he would have described it as torture. When he judged that enough aliens were sufficiently incapacitated, Hank was supposed to send out a signal to Spider-Man with his Ant-Man helmet. Then Steve and Jan and the others would attack. He would meet up with them, and they'd rescue whatever was left of Tony. Thirty-six hours couldn't pass quickly enough.